Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the One More Jump podcast by Rise Pole Vault. Today, we have the honor of having the 2022 USATF Coach of the Year, Brad Walker, on the podcast. Him and I, when we get together, it goes pretty deep and pretty, pretty long time. So buckle up on this one. We got into the weeds on all kinds of different things uh, with health and and uh, training and his crazy year this past year with that one-two punch at the World Championships, um, some changes in his training group, uh, just all kinds of stuff that we got into. And and I just was so grateful for his time because one of the things we got into was how insane his schedule is. Um, and yeah, it was a really cool look into what an elite, I mean, the most elite pole vault coach in the country, what, what his day-to-day looks like because uh, it might be surprising to you. But anyway, yeah, it was a great podcast. I am just so honored to be able to call him a friend and to be able to, I don't know, it's like one of those rare instances where one of your childhood heroes, you end up being able to uh, ask them questions, any questions you want, and uh, and they actually respond, which is kind of cool. So anyway... Let's get to the episode. We hope you enjoy this podcast with our Coach of the Year, Brad Walker. Um, It's it's no big deal at all, but uh, first of all, I'd like to just say congratulations, USATF Coach of the Year, which is pretty exciting. Nice to be recognized, right? No, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, it was a, it was definitely a shocking phone call. I got a buddy of mine from USATF was like, "Hey, I'm going to give your number to somebody," and then I got a phone call, and she, um, a woman, you know, kind of one of their marketing women, told me I had won the award. And thinking to myself, I was like, "Wait, did I win, or am I just in the running for it?" Like, it was definitely out of the blue, but um, yeah, it was it was very nice of them to to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I. Uh, why were you surprised? I mean, you crushed it. <laughs> you did such a good job this year. Um, I you had to know. known that something like you had to know that people were noticing. I mean, especially after this year. Last year was you know incredible, but this year was like whoa. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know. I just, I just, you know, doing the grind. Like I'm in Cairo school. I'm trying to keep everything together, going to Cairo school and coaching at the same time, and just like life chaotic and hectic and it just wasn't really even on the radar at all it just was i mean i forgot that the annual convention even happened you know it's just like you're just running around doing stuff and and um so yeah it was but it was it was awesome yeah it was really nice of them i was really happy and 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 certainly proud to receive that style of award from that group of people and i don't know how that one's actually judged like i don't know if it's done where usatf internally votes on it or if it's like a personal vote you know from from everybody but um Right. Either way, I'm happy to happy to be the recipient. Yeah, it's really cool for the pole vault as a whole too. You know, just to you know have like out of all the events, you know, like our event had somebody win that award, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. I appreciate that trying yeah. to hold it down for the pole vault. <laughs> yeah, pole well, vault, you're doing bro. a good job. So, what's going on? Like with you were talking about chiropractic school and all of that. So, like, I don't know if people realize 
you know, there's like this disconnect with the pole vault and kind of how it all works in the U.S. Like maybe if you're really young in the sport, you might think like, oh, the Nike or the uh, USATF coach of the year, like he doesn't do anything besides sit around all day and just look at video and and coach people, you know? Yeah. So I think it would be cool for people to get maybe a little background into like what you're doing and and what your like day to day looks like. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, I mean, similar to when top people think about, oh, well, if you made the Olympic team, you know, you you're doing a full time, ju- you know, you just that's your full time gig, and you're set, and you you know, you're you're going to have money coming in from all these different areas, and the majority of the Olympians aren't in that in that boat. Um, and yeah, coaching, to be honest, is is even worse than the athlete side of it when you're trying to work with just elites. And when I when I say that, it's really tricky to try to figure out how to charge elite athletes but when you say elite athletes not all of them are i say elite versus professional because professional people in my opinion survive by making income from the sport and elite athletes don't necessarily that's how and i do you work with a professional athletes like because doesn't katie and sandy they've got a i don't think they do anything else right correct they yeah they're full-time athletes in in fact um uh the af- there's only a few that I would label elite because the majority of them, I guess, that I work with are professional, but obviously mm-hmm. there's varying levels of professionalism if you just look at it from a financial model. I see what you're saying though. Yeah. Because well, you know, one thing that I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be like condescending to anybody, but there's a lot of people who will be like, I'm a pro pole vaulter because they made like a grand at one meet in the street meet in, you know, Sacramento. And you're just like, well, mm you're not professionally doing it. You're not paying the bills with it. And, but that doesn't mean they're not great. You know what I mean? Right. It just means that there's, I think there's a level of differentiation between somebody who's surviving solely on the sport and then somebody who is trying to make it onto the scene. And I, I think, I think that, um, there is a difference there. And so I always just huge kind of difference. say elites. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's huge. I mean, I, whenever I was, coming i would have never have said that i was a professional pole vaulter like did i go to meets with professional pole vaulters absolutely but i was a professional teacher you know like that that was what that was what i was doing like i was a professional teacher and if i never pole vaulted a day in my life at that point i would have nothing would have changed in my life except maybe i would have been a little happier (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah right you know yeah. So, um, so anyway, that's, that's, uh, going back to the question of kind of how my day looks. Um, yeah. Before we get into that, I wanted to mention that Rise Pole Vault is making a strong push to produce some really cool video content this year. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, you are going to enjoy this new video content. So make sure that you subscribe and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Hope you guys enjoy it. So, First of all, when I when I had originally decided to leave WSU and go to chiropractic school, um, I did so because I wasn't really enjoying the college scene, and I was thinking that um, I needed to. If I I looked at some of the coaches who were like kind of mentors and coaches to me, and I saw the lifestyle that they were having to live, and I realized I moved around so much as an athlete that I didn't want to do the same thing for the rest of my life. And for those people who are unfamiliar with like the college coaching scene, they move around a lot and everybody's trying to like clamor for the upgraded coaching position. And then you move somewhere for two years and then you do well and you get an upgrade and you go to some other place for two years 
And then you either try stay as an assistant coach or try to be the head coach. And then you have a whole nother deal where you go to a small program as a head coach, prove yourself, move to a big program as a head coach. Or the, the, the other side of it is you're working as an assistant coach, your head coach gets fired, all of a sudden you don't have a job anymore. And it wasn't because of lack of you know what you were doing. It was because you know the head coach is gone and the new head coach is bringing in his own team and all that stuff. So there's so when you sign a when you sign to be an assistant coach, you sign for a one year deal. There's no like five year contracts or anything like that. So I every didn't year, know that every year you're re-signing a contract, and whether the head coach wants to re-sign you, which hopefully he does, or the head coach gets fired, I mean your job is literally up in the air every single year. And from January until June, you're traveling almost every weekend. And um, there's no real off time except for the summer. And then some of the coaches want you to be in the office just twiddling your thumbs when there's nothing to do in the summer just because it seems like, you know, there should be an office presence. And I'm just like, <laughs> guys, this is, this is ridiculous. And so anyway, I, I ended up taking an opportunity that a buddy of mine told me that people who had made the Olympics could get a scholarship to Cairo school. And it was such a good opportunity that I felt like I couldn't turn it down. And I've always been in in, in involved with health and athlete health and nutrition and all these different things. So it kind of seemed like a natural fit. And in my head, I don't know. I, I didn't know. I, I kind of don't think I knew what I was getting into. You know, they, mm. a lot of people joke and they're like, oh, you know, well, he's only a chiropractor, not a doctor. And I was probably one of those people who were like, well, you know, they, they do chiro, they push on some stuff. And as I'm getting through my last final of like lung consolidation and atelectasis and pleural effusions <laughs> and stuff, I'm like, guys, we don't even... We don't, we can't even do anything. If we find this, we can't do anything. But the point is, is that you have to be able to find it and refer to the right person because a chiropractor is a point of entry physician, meaning like they, somebody will come to you and not have to go to anybody else before they see you. Uh. So for example, one of the classes we were, we were in a geriatrics class and this doctor was telling us an example um, that a guy came into his office and he said he pulled his pec muscle and he, he did it while he was painting a house. So um, the Cairo was going through trying to, you know, recreate the pain, couldn't recreate it. He was like, dude, I think you need to go to the emergency room because, you know, this style of chest pain, if we can't recreate it is uh, potentially, you know, life, life threatening. So he did, he had heart, he, he ended up having heart surgery that afternoon sort of thing. Whoa. Yeah. And it was, he was, he was having a heart attack. Uh, it had been going on for a couple of days. And, um, you know, if that chiropractor hadn't noticed the signs and symptoms, you know, and all that stuff and got him to the right you know, right place, he probably would have, would have passed away that, you know, within that week or so. And so anyway, it's, it's, uh, I understand it, but at the same time, I'm like, did I sign up to do, <laughs> to do all this stuff? Um, I've got about one year left. Uh, my last quarter was 28 and a half credits. Well, um, quarter. Which, yeah. Quarter. So like in, I was in, I was in the quarter system in college and we would have to take 15 to stay eligible or actually I think you had to t stay, take 12 to stay eligible. And we're in 28 and a half uh, last quarter. Oh my gosh. So I was busy. Yeah, it's it's awful. There are days where I feel like I'm not keeping my head above water. And then I know that both like both sides of the coin are being being hindered, like my coaching is being hindered from it because of my time constraints. And then my chiropractic studies is being hindered by like trying to coach and try to be there for the athletes on the weekends and stuff like that. So I'm just treading water trying to get through it. And then um once uh basically calendar year from now, I'll be finishing up with the program and, um, life will open back up again for me, which I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Hang in there, man. One more year. Let's go. Come on. <laughs> Almost if you told there. me, if you told me that I could get a, a degree as a, as a doctor of chiropractic in, um, 
one year, I would be like, let's do it. So I feel like that's how I have to frame it is I got one year to get this degree done. Right. Three, three more boards that I got to sit for. I passed my first boards on the first go around, which I was pumped with. And then, um, yeah, three more and be on the way. So do you intend to practice then? I, that's maybe a dumb question. I don't know. No, it's not a dumb question at all. I mean, um, I don't have my, uh, I don't have, I'm not a five-year planner. That's Mm. just not my, that's just not my style. And I feel like, um, I know last time you and I talked, we both kind of mentioned we were Christian and, uh, I feel like, I feel like the Holy Spirit, I feel like the Holy Spirit, there's a, there's a verse in the Bible where the Holy Spirit kind of blows like the wind and blows you where, you know, you don't know where you're going sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's been true in my life where I'll have opportunities present themselves and just kind of like walk into it, knowing that it's the right thing, like feeling from a gut standpoint that it's the right thing. And so um, my gut's telling me that I'll be moving back closer to family. And then how my life proceeds from there is, uh, is a bit unsure, but I I like the idea of treating. I just don't like the idea of treating like eight to five, five to six days a week. So yeah, I feel like your brain like won't fit into that sort of, of category. Like I, I work with a guy, his name's Mark Turner and he's the only person that I trust my body with. Like he's, he's a Cairo, but like, that's, that's the thing that bothers me about, uh, chiropractic is there are some Cairos that are just Cairos, you know, like, it's just Mm -hmm. like, they, they just snap you up and do the, do the (laughs) thing. And like, they're like, all right, we're going to get you on the next snapping program. And we're going to, you know, do this for three (laughs) days, three days a week for six weeks. And then you should be good. Yeah. And then there's other Kairos that are just way better than the majority of doctors that I work (laughs) with. And they know like everything about the human body. They have all sorts of certifications and all different types of things and they're just incredible and so that i i i work with this guy mark and and i just always whenever you told me you were going to chiropractic i was like i he would fit into that category of (laughs) of uh of chiropractor and what what mark turner does is just so uh it looks just like so fun like he Mm. just he's just very he incorporates all aspects of human health into what he does you know nutrition and supplementation and um you know sometimes very fringy stuff too Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and that's what i love about it and i just i don't know just in the back of my head i just see you doing something like that yeah it's funny well first i appreciate you know i appreciate that uh the you are you're right i mean you know Unfortunately, you go to certain chiropractic offices, like let's say, and there's nothing wrong with being in a strip mall, but you'll see them every once. <laughs> you'll just see a chiropractic sign in like a random strip mall, and you know adjustments for 19.99 or whatever. And you go in and you do. You sit on the table, you get cracked, and they then they toss you off. And <clears throat> there is for certain people that's probably enough to be honest. But coming from an athletic background, um, <clears throat> that's not how I want to treat. And I would like to treat athletes, but I think the soft tissue component of people's bodies, uh, is sometimes overlooked in the profession a little bit. Right. And, and I get it. And it depends on like, it depends on who you want to be and what you want to do. So if you're, if you're going after a solely financial model and you're trying to fit four appointments within an hour and you're seeing each person for 15 minutes, there's clinics that are doing like insane numbers where the doctor will literally be in there. The Cairo will be in there for like 
you know, three to four minutes per patient. And they're just, it's a factory. And there is, I mean, I, I can't say that that's not, um, it's not the model I want to be in. And mm-hmm. there, I think there are more effective ways to do it. And so you're right. I've seen some chiropractors in my career that were really, really instrumental in keeping me healthy. But those are the chiropractors that I was in their office for, you know, 30, 40 minutes. I was getting soft tissue work. They were sending me home with exercises. They were doing all of that kind of stuff. And um, one of the things that's neat about the the degree that you get is you really can do just about anything with it. And what I mean by that is obviously we don't do anything with medicine. We can't prescribe any medication, which is kind of right up my alley because I think, you know, traditional MDs are kind of pumping people full of meds and right. It's like, you got indigestion. Well, don't stop eating that sloppy food that you're eating. Why don't you just take this pill? And it's like, ah, <laughs> that might not be medicine. That might not work. But, um, but, uh, so, but you can, you know, you could do a nutrition angle. You can do, there's a lot of chiropractors who focus, uh, solely on like nerve, on like on cranial nerves and they start doing all these things, eye tracking movements and all these different things where they're working through the cranial nerves. Um, you can certainly do the traditional adjusting, but you can do soft tissue work. Um, I'm already like kind of structuring how I think I would want an office of my own to be set up. And um, my sister's a naturopath. So there may be like an opportunity in the future to kind of partner with a doctor who can prescribe medicine, but who still looks at the body in like a holistic approach that says, you know what I mean? That's not looking at it as like a, you know, MD saying, take this. It's like, okay, my sister does a lot of stuff. She's actually kind of a migraine specialist. So she has her own little thing in the migraine world. Um, but the idea of like running labs, looking at all the deficiencies, looking at the genetic makeups, like I've done a lot of stuff in my own health. I know last time we talked on the podcast about me having chronic headaches. And so yeah. I went through all sorts of different things of doing genetic testing and looking at, um, they call them SNPs, SNPs, but basically you have like genetic testing and then you have a profile of what you've been handed down that may or may not be functioning appropriately from like one parent or both parents. And then with those you can understand why certain foods you don't like or certain foods make you feel bad and stuff. And then you can supplement around them. And my sister's pretty good at all that stuff. Um, and so anyway, it's, you can kind of go anywhere with it. So like, if I don't want to just, you know, put people on a table and start cracking on them, I could do, I could do the neuro angle. I could do nutrition. I could do whatever, but I think I'd probably want to do soft tissue and, and, you know, um, alignment, you know, stuff with most people that I work with. Yeah. And that's what I usually recommend. Like I recommend Mark uh, Turner, the guy I'm talking about, I recommend him too. I mean, he works, he works with all kinds of professional athletes and they, the professional athletes like fly him out to places like, cause he's, he's the man. Yeah, And, and so I recommend that people that we work with go and see him. And one of the things that I've always like kind of suggested is if your Cairo is not doing soft tissue, you might, just kind of want to think about it for a little bit because if they're solely just snapping you up i don't know about that like (laughs) if they're not if they're not like working on the soft tissue as well and that's the thing is like sometimes i would go in i'd have a messed up back or you know whatever some pole vault injury and he would work on me for a while and then i'd be like waiting for the adjustment and he'd be like all right you're done. And I'd be like, hmm. no adjustment. You're a chiropractor. And he's like, yo, you don't need an adjustment. I don't want to adjust you if you don't need an adjustment, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. No, that's those, those, I think that's super important. There's a, there's a sign in our clinic right now. Cause I'm now like actually starting to work on people, but it's under the supervision of one of the doctors that are in the clinic and all that stuff. And there's a sign that says, when's the last time you didn't give an adjustment? Like question mark. Cause it's like the point of it is 
you have somebody who's out of alignment and you're trying to take pressure off of the nerves and trying to get all the tissue to calm down. And then once you get to that point, they're good. You know what I mean? You're not trying, the model isn't like, see this person for the rest of their entire, well, the model is do checkups to make sure that they're in alignment, you know, continuously so that they don't have something happen. But, um, but yeah, the, the idea is to get somebody healthy and just kind of have hit maintenance mode. And I do agree that I think soft tissue, doing the soft tissue is something that will um, make the adjustment hold better and go much easier. And if you neglect it, especially in, an, in the athlete population who hold a lot of tension in the first place, um, you're kind of doing a little bit of a disservice to the body and, and, and things aren't going to be, I think, as effective. And one of the things that I like the most of all soft tissue therapies is dry needling. And I found that out in my career when I was pole vaulting, um, all of my back pain was coming from my glutes. So for anybody who has back pain, listen up, guys, it's probably coming from your glutes. Um, the glutes get super tight since we're on like the top hand and they start kind of contracting. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of, you know, nerves, you know, through the low back. And, and there's a lot of things going on back there. And it, you end up getting a situation where. Um, if the muscles get really tight and the back gets locked up, things start getting, you know, impinged and fired up. And anyway, there are certain states that chiropractors can use needles and certain states that they can't. So I'll most likely be practicing in a state that I can. And, um, right. Dry needling is, is a cool way to really, I just uh, need a, a, a piece of paper here because I'm trying to write this down because Luke, Luke is going to be doing dry needling now. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you got to find a good one. So talk to your Cairo who I mean, he will know and yeah, talk, to, yeah. talk to that guy. Um, but yeah, keeping the glutes open is like super important. Um, and then what's cool about needles, in my opinion, like your thumbs can only go, okay. Think of glute max. It's like this big, it's your, it's your butt, right? Like you can only effectively get, you know, a few centimeters into that tissue. And then before the tissue's like too deep in there to affect, but a needle can go all the way through the entire muscle. So let's say you're trying to get the underbelly. Let's Let's say you're trying to get you know, the most interior aspect of the, of the muscle, like you can go directly to it with a needle. You can get like pec minor, which is like maybe a hard area to get to or effective, you know, everybody's trying to do door stretches and things, but you can go like straight in there with the needle. You can get areas um, in needles really deep that you just can't hit any other way. And what um, is the mechanism behind the dry needle though? So like it, I'm, I understand that it penetrates through and it can go deep to some sort of trigger point or mm-hmm. some sort of adhesion in your muscle. And so when you, is it essentially like you're just kind of poking it until it releases or? Sort of. Yeah, sort of. I mean, it's, uh, that's, that's definitely the unscientific way to look at it. And honestly, <laughs> that's the way I look at it. No, there are right. certain trigger points in the tissue. Um, there's also one of the chiropractors or no, excuse me, one of the acupuncturists a long time ago, I talked to was like, think of it like this, the body is smart and the body knows that if it's being pierced with something, contracting against that thing is going to cause more damage. Oh. It's like your body's going to know if you got stabbed with a knife, don't contract against it because you're going to cut more fibers, right? So there's a foreign body in there and the body is going to say, well, don't contract against that. That's going to cause harm. So let's release sort of thing. Now it won't always really, I mean, the trigger points are what you're trying to shoot for. And the trigger points are, you know, certain points in the muscle that, that kind of have, um, well, there's just a little bit more control over the tissue and, and all of that stuff. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's that. And then it's also even like um, anything that causes inflammation will signal to the body, like recover. So you're causing small inflammation, just like if you're like lifting and tearing down muscle fibers, the muscle is going to go, hey, we need to do blood supply. We need to do vitamins, minerals, all that kind of stuff. So if you get an area in your body that's like stagnant, there's not a lot of blood going on. The muscle has been tight for a long period of time. 
uh, and it doesn't have good blood flow. And then you go jab it and cause a bunch of inflammation in there. The body's going to signal, hey, we got to come down and do this. So like, I think there's a lot of things going on through dry needling. I haven't studied it. Like I'm getting through the Cairo degree first. And then I have somebody in Spokane that I want to shadow, but I'll definitely be taking dry needling courses. That's and awesome. prob- probably better be able to explain what's what's going on once I do that. Right, right. And that's what's so cool about, I, in my opinion, like a chiropractor is you can be like a Swiss army knife. Like you can exactly. literally just, it's like, okay, well, I, I have dry needling that's in my quiver now. And now I'm going to go after ART or flossing yep. or, you know, whatever it is that, you know, you want, you want to do. And that's what's so cool. And And as you go on in the practice, your your quiver just gets filled with so many freaking arrows you know and then you can you can actually if you you know in my head if you get good enough at it you could start to bring in like experts in those specific areas if you become too overwhelmed with work or whatever and and that's what uh my guy has done is you know he just he's got a group of people together and it's like oh yeah you you know have terrible stomach pain all right well you're gonna go see this lady she's a gi specialist yeah. you know yeah no you're right and what i was telling i was telling my girlfriend the other day i was like I, I i could see setting up my own practice and if this isn't i've never had this happen at a practice before but i agree with you soft tissue is super important so i was like what if every single person who signs up to come in comes in like if you if you have them come in at, let's say 9 a.m but you're not going to work on them until 9 30 and that first half hour they're on a massage table getting massaged b- mm. before you actually see them so then your time becomes more efficient because somebody else is doing some of the soft tissue but then as you see that patient more and more, you understand the areas that need more help. And so you're derived, you're, you're driving the massage and you're saying, these are the areas I need to focus on. Cause this is what I'm going to go after today from an adjustment standpoint. And then post adjustment, you know, maybe you're doing some needlework for the areas that couldn't get resolved or whatever. And you kind of have this, like, even in, in a sense where if, you know, mo- like a lot of massages are 60 bucks an hour. So a dollar a minute. So it's like, if you're charging somebody $30, but they get a full $30, you know, 30 minute massage before they see you. Then they get adjusted. Then you do some needlework. Then you give them, you know, some exercises to go home. And they do that fairly religiously for a few months. Like their body's going to change and they're going to notice, oh, yeah. you know, notice a difference. And then the good thing about that is now I'm not doing nearly as much soft tissue, but they're still getting it done. And then they're prepped and ready to go for when they're on my table. And, uh, you know, so anyway, it's like you said, there's, there's a bunch of ways to go about it. Um, but I just got to get through school. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, that uh, the guy that I'm talking about, he uh, he doesn't take insurance, so you can you can run your insurance, mm-hmm. you know, through him, but not all of it is covered. And I think he just got tired of dealing with the insurance companies, yeah. and he was just like, you know what? He's at that level where it's like, okay, if my you know if an appointment with me is running a hundred fifty dollars or a hundred, I think it's a hundred eighty. Mm-hmm. 180 or 200 dollars per thing so it's like oh my gosh that's so insane that that's so expensive like how can i do that consistently or whatever um people do because yeah. if you're that good then people will do it yeah and like there's this woman it's kind of funny i had i had never experienced this before and this is a woman that i want to shadow before i get into really dry needling but i was so i was training katie in spokane and this was going in spokane had um actually it wasn't the year that spokane held us indoors but she was getting ready for us indoors she was having some issues i think with her achilles and i was like i'm gonna want you to go see jody 
So I called Jody. This was in February. So like, let's just say February of 2019. And I called Jody's office and I was like, yeah, I have an athlete there. You know, there's a meet coming up in like three weeks that I want to try to get him prepped for. And I just want to get an appointment and try to calm something down. She goes, well, we're booked out for the year. Oh, my God. it was February. I'm like, you're that it's insane. Like, I couldn't believe it. I'd never called someone, you know, you, you, they're like, oh, we're six weeks out. I'm like, oh, that's annoying. Uh, you know, whatever. But the entire calendar year was booked. And I'm like, okay, so even just dry needling alone, if you're really talented, I mean, every modality, if you're really talented, people will come to you because I think the health, you know, the state of health of the country and then healthcare in general is such a, in such a poor state that when you have something that's actually giving you pain relief and actually really working well, like people will do it. And not yeah. only that, you know, not only that, but it's like for people who really understand what's going on in terms of like movement in the body and how the body sets up disease over time and stuff. Um, that's one of the things that's been really interesting in Cairo school is learning how what they, what the chiropractic profession calls a subluxation when you have a joint that's essentially in, in malpositioned or sitting in a play, way that it's not supposed to. Um, not only is it striking, uh, can it compress nerves? And then those nerves have less signal going to different areas of the body. Like for example, in your mid thoracic, a lot of those nerves innervate your organs. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you have, then the nerves are coming out the spinal column in between the vertebrae. And if the vertebrae are compressing or, you know, pinching a specific nerve in a specific fashion, um, you're turning down the electrical signal that's going to be going to that organ. And so then that, that organ, now all of a sudden, if you have like gut problems or you have, you know, some sort of digestive issues or some gallbladder issues. Um, in fact, uh, there's a lot of, for young kids, there's a lot of young kids who get chronic ear infections mm -hmm. and an up, upper cervical adjustment can actually like significantly improve and or um, release, like relieve that chronic ear infection. Um, wow. And so there's a lot of this like nervous system innervation that's coming out of the spine that an adjustment can help. And so it's been cool learning about that because I think from you and my perspective, we're just going performance, performance, performance. Like that's the only thing that matters. You know, one of the things like my ankle, I would get an anterior talus, meaning the talus bone that was sitting, you know, the top of your foot that your tibia sits on would shift forward. And when it shifts forward, the foot can't dorsiflex as much as it's supposed to. So I'd be running and I get a ton of pain and I wouldn't be able to get over my toe very well on one foot because I had a foot surgery that I think made, made it to where I had this anterior talus problem fairly often. And until I got like, if I had that, if I had an anterior talus and I felt it, like I wouldn't, I couldn't run until I got it adjusted. So for me, it's like, this is performance only. This is why I'm here. And then as I get a little bit more into the profession and understand the science behind what a subluxation can lead to. And then also like one of the classes we just got, I just finished this quarter is called vertebral subluxation theory. Um, but it has to do with like nociceptors and mechanoreceptors and how the brain perceives certain malpositions. And it's like a cascade effect where it just shuts down and tightens muscles, trying to reorient neutral. And then as that happens over time, it's kind of like a cascade of like tightness and you get into a situation where, you don't move very well. Right. And then, you know, you you have all these like aberrant patterns of tension that are like putting each, you know, position a little off. And then all of a sudden, you know, over time, you multiply that by years and it's like disease sets in sort of thing. So right, it's just opened my mind up a little bit more to, to the more, um, to the less performance standpoint and the more just overall health standpoint sort of thing. Right. And I mean, overall health uh, is going to affect your performance. Whenever you said gallbladder, I read a book about how a lot of like middle-aged women get their gallbladders removed and how there's like a 
correlations with certain diets and stuff like that and mm. and all of these things. And whenever you said gallbladder, I was like, man, wouldn't it be crazy if it's like, oh, I'm having gallbladder issues, like my my gallbladder hurts, and and then they remove your gallbladder, and then you find out that you could have got a chiropractic adjustment yeah. <laughs> instead. No, that stuff happens a lot. I tell you what, there's a lot of surgeries that, um, especially it's like fusion type surgeries, Ooh. where well, it's really sad because what'll happen is somebody will have back pain, right? So they go to the MD, and the MD says, oh yeah, you got back pain. Here it is. They push on something. They don't know how to change it. So then they give you opioids. And then a lot of these people, like the whole opioid epidemic, like a lot of it was spurred on by back pain. And the MDs in like, I think it was like in the seventies, I got a book, but I, I hadn't actually read it where there was a huge the MDs were trying to shut down chiropractic. So they were saying it's dangerous and it's this and it's that. And they were trying to get it out of the profession because they didn't like that they were treating patients without, you know, pharmaceuticals. Drugs, and, yeah. Yeah, without drugs. And so then they were like trying to kind of bash on the profession and all that stuff. But it's like there's been, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how many surgeries have been done that could have been resolved, which is like good, consistent care. Um, and, and like spurred on like kind of part of the opioid epidemic where it's like, they just keep people on drugs and then people are drugged up and they have to stay on the opioids because otherwise they're in too much pain and things like that. And then you do that long enough and you get degeneration in the joints that you can't come back from. So then they have to do like a spinal fusion and it's just like, gosh, you just needed movement, you know? And that's one of the things that I try to keep in the back of my mind because you, you can get super nerdy about all this kind of stuff and say that you can cure the world by, you know, doing a chiropractic adjustment. And I'm really not on that train, so to speak. However, um, the body wants to move and if something stops moving, get it moving again, you know, like when it all comes down to it, like that's the motto that I look at. So if you have a segment or a joint in your body, that's, that's locked up, just get it to move and then make sure that it stays moving. And if you do that for a long period of time, you're probably gonna be pretty healthy. And if you don't do that over a long period of time, pain's going to set in and then your quality of life goes down and then your alcohol drinking goes up because you're trying to mask the pain. And then all right. of a sudden you get some other problem that you didn't know was a catalyst. You know, the catalyst was just a joint that wasn't moving way back when. Right. I, uh, I have two points that I just want to talk about really quick. Um, number one is I feel like we went through a, as a society, we went through a very deep dark, and we're still probably, we're still in it is, um, just throwing drugs at everything, like just throw some drugs at it, throw some drugs at it. But then we also went through and are still kind of in a very surgery heavy time too, you know, Mm -hmm. like where it was like, Hey, we'll just throw some drugs at it. We'll go in there. We'll take that thing out of there and then (laughs) should be good. (laughs) You know, like it's like out of sight, out of mind type thing. Like, oh, you, you know, this hurts or that hurts. Ah, we'll just take it out, you know? And, uh, and I really do think that in the future, like there's been times where I, I got my knee scoped out and stuff like that. And I was like, did I really like, did I really need that? Like they went in and, and you know, they cleaned it out or whatever. And maybe I did, maybe I didn't, but was I doing all of the right things, uh, like, was I using surgery as a last ditch effort instead of, oh, I got a little tear in my meniscus, uh, got to have surgery, you know, or or whatever. And that's where I think in the future it's going to, I, I don't know how you feel about like stem cells and peptides and like all of those sorts of things. Um, but I feel like some parts of society are moving away towards like, hold on, let's not do surgery just yet. 
let's try some other things and see if we can do this without surgery because you can't take surgery back. Mm-hmm. You know, like once you get it, once you fuse that spine together, <laughs> yeah, can't, it's hard. You can't call it, you know, saw it back apart, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Well, the one thing that I'd say, and just cause I, you know, I, I don't want this to sound like just jump on the Cairo train to everybody listening, but there is like, if I got stabbed, I don't want to go to a chiropractor. If I'm I'm in an altercation, I have like something blows up in my body. I have like organ failure. Like I'm not going to go get that adjusted out. It's not like, Hey, get, get, hit me that with that thoracic thrust real quick. And then all of a sudden (laughs) my heart attack disappears. I, there's absolutely a time and a place for all things. Well, not all things medical, but a lot of things medical. And, um, but I think you're right that the, you know, surgeons make money by performing surgery. Mm. That's their job. That's their income. So if you get referred to one, only the really, really good ones will say, you don't need this. Mm. All the rest of them are going to do the surgery. Um, in fact, uh, uh, my girls, she has, she's getting, she has to get uh, her wisdom teeth out and the course they're saying, okay, you know, we need to get an anesthesiologist in here and we need to put you under. Well, I had my wisdom teeth out by la- with laughing gas. It was no big deal. And yeah, because we're told that we don't need, we, that we need anesthesia, right? right. And, and we're, we're told that we need it. Well, why, why are we told that we need that? Well, because somebody's getting probably what, five to $10,000 to be standing in a room, turning a knob, making sure that you're like unconscious, but you're doing it safely. And right. I was at the Olympic training center in, I don't know, let's say 20, let's just say it was 2011. And there was a drug specialist who came on and it was kind of a, it was kind of like an awareness for drug, um, for drug use saying, these are the drugs that stay in your body the longest. And it was like, if you drink, you metabolize it quickly. Weed stays in your body a little longer. If you do harder drugs, this can have a negative effect and last this long. And then they were, they said, does anybody know what stays in your, in your body for an entire like calendar year? Or I, I might be getting the dates messed up, but it was like, six months to a year. Like it was, and everybody's like, whoa, what would that be? You know, it's gotta be ecstasy, you know, and you're just, you know, right, you're right. dumb. And they were like, this is anesthesia. This is anesthesia from surgery. It stays in your, your body. I mean, it, it's so aggressive that it completely blacks you out. Right. And you stay under too long, you know, like there's problems, like it's a really aggressive thing. And if I'm having certain surgeries, I will absolutely go and get anesthesia because it's warranted. Right. Cause you don't right. want to be, you don't want to be feeling or being aware of that stuff. But Wisdom teeth, just pulling out some teeth. It's a little okay. more. It's a little. It's well, deep down in there, man. Well, Come some on. of them. Some people are getting them where they're actually. You were awake when out. you got your wisdom teeth out. I had. I was in a dream state after I had some laughing gas and nitric oxide. And first, I remember be like be, being high, as right. in I was sitting there and I was, and I I knew that I shouldn't laugh, but I really wanted to laugh, and I was, and <laughs> I was biting my cheek really hard so that I wouldn't laugh. Right. I was like close to busting out laughing. And then I was like, but well, shouldn't I be in this? You know, like I'm like high. So I'm like, should well, maybe it's okay to laugh because they know that I'm taking this gas, but it still seems ridiculous if I just started laughing. <laughs> anyway, and then I then I had all four removed and I basically like blinked four times. And each time I blinked, they were on a different tooth, and then I was up. And so actually oh, wow. I'm coaching Gabby Leon now, and Gabby had her wisdom teeth out not too long ago. And I just told her, I told her the same thing I just told you, like, you don't have to get put under and you can do something like a nitrous Mm. oxide. She did. She said it was awesome. And she was training the next day, like fully, like no problems. Right. And um, yeah, so there's a lot of procedures, like as an example of the medical community, like they're making their money by 
you know, doing things that maybe aren't necessarily needed to be done. And the same thing, I had a, I had a choice in 2010 to have C4 or 5, um, two vertebral uh, vertebrae fused because my C, so the disc in between C4 or 5 was, um, was, was causing issues and it was striking a nerve and it was really painful and all that stuff. And I just said, gosh, I really don't want to fuse that because if, if pole vaulters land on their upper shoulders and neck all the time, and I said, if I all of a sudden take a functioning joint out, now I have more stress on C3, 4, yep. and, you know, 5, 6, and I don't want to do that. And so then I, you know, did some prolotherapy and I started doing a bunch of rehab and all of a sudden, you know, I didn't need it. And I was like, well, I'm glad it's not fused. You know, it's, it's For something real. that, and, and the, it, no, the doctor was just giving me an option. Hey, if you want to get rid of this, this is something we could do, but he wasn't pushing it. And, um, but you know, a lot of people would do that fusion. And then, like you said, you lose, uh, you, you lose out in the long run. Yeah. And I, I don't want to seem like a hater towards, you know, surgeons and stuff like that too. You had a very good point. If you snap your leg in half, go, go get surgery. <laughs> go get okay? surgery on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I tell my wife this all the time and she might get mad at me for saying this, but like my kids, like they'll get like a runny nose or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And she'll be like, uh, okay, well we got to bring them into the doctor and I'll be like, well, they're going to, their job is to tell you, like you're paying somebody to tell you for a service and you're not, you know, it's very rare when you're going to go in there and because there's probably sometimes where doctors are going to be like, oh man, there's nothing really wrong with this kid. Like, can I make something up? Or like, cause they're paying for this, you yeah. know, <laughs> like they're paying yeah, for this. Yeah. And then, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Let's uh, get her on, you know, breathing treatments and and you know stuff like that and stuff that's not really that you know invasive. And I feel like sometimes it's like, well, if you go to a doctor, they're going to tell you doctor stuff, you yeah. know, like and you're it, not gonna have a cold, you're gonna have a rhinovirus, and that's gonna sound right, scary. Exactly. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> over the counters aren't gonna be enough, and you only want the best for your child. And then you know. $350 later, you have a fancy asthma thing or, you know, just a acetaminophen yeah. that's coated in something fancy that they're, you know, charging you up. The... Yeah, I agree. It's that's their job. And, and I mean, it's it's. Uh, you know, we're in a we're in a weird, you know, humanity, I feel like is in a weird state. We don't have to go down the whole vaccine, you know, deal or anything like that, because that'll probably be divisive and everybody. I mean, I'm not PC, so we can get into it if you want. But, um, <laughs> but I know that. But we're put into such a state of we're, we're we're like being put into such a state of fear. Everything's scary. You know, now that the now that the coronavirus came out, which now that the coronavirus came out, now they're saying this is going to be the worst flu season the world's ever seen. And it's like, we're not going to die in this flu season. You know what I mean? Like we may be a little bit more of ill health or whatever, but I just feel like there's panic around illness now in a different way than there used to be. Mm-hmm. I'm like, guys, it's a flu. It's a little bit worse. Like stay healthy, do your vitamin D and vitamin C and do all the things. And like, don't be obese. That's going to be like super helpful for you getting over this thing. And you know what I mean? Like exercise a little bit and do things that are like normal human things to do. And, you know, there are certain people who are predisposed. I get that. I'm not trying to like say that that's not a thing because it absolutely is. But um, gosh, it's just like everybody's trying to put such a big state of fear in everybody's mind that we're now becoming worried about things that are pretty harmless, I think, overall. And it's a, I think it's a bad way to go. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, and it had it, it had its effects on me. I think the psychological effects of the last three years were pretty substantial. Like, uh, it, it was just a wild, wild time. You know, yeah. I, I don't think I, we're out of it. I don't think we're out no, of it. 
no yeah, no it's, we're not it's, out of it it's gonna be it's gonna be a while and you know it is what it is but um i wanted to go back to we had talked a little bit about um you had talked about how uh, what do you call the things dry needling causes oh, yeah. like minor inflammation and stuff like that so inflammation is one of those bad words like it's like oh my gosh you got inflammation and uh you know this is this is terrible get some ice put mm-hmm. some ice on it we got to get mm-hmm. the inflammation down yeah. okay so this is something that's been bothering me for a long time and i've been waiting to talk to you about this on the podcast so i love cold therapy i think that ice baths and i go into frozen rivers at times during the winter and and i think it's an incredible hormetic stressor that is really really awesome um for somebody i don't recommend that our like my athletes do it um just because there is it does put a large amount of stress on on your body especially if you're going in really frigid stuff like up to your up to your neck and stuff mm-hmm. like that Um, so I don't recommend like Luke do it and stuff like that for the general person. I think it's good. But so that side of cold therapy, I really, really like, and I think it's been beneficial to me in my daily life. But I think this whole like icing, like injuries and like icing shin splints and, and like doing like using this ice as like this crazy like healer of all things is very old science is that what do you think about that um i think that um it's still applicable for certain certain styles of injury and i think ice is most useful when you have an acute onset something and you're trying to get the swelling down i think ice is it has its place in that area um i've never been huge on ice as a long-term kind of treatment protocol for anything, to be honest. And the main reason I say that is probably because of my own body's experience with it. But you're right that certain inflammation is fine. Certain inflammation is good and it causes um, hormonal activity in the body and, and things that we need. The reason we lift is to create inflammation so that our body can use that inflammation as signaling to kind of rebuild tissue and things like that. In fact, if you were to take so many, you know, doses of omega-3s and anti-inflammatories and keep the inflammation down to, to a non-existent point, and I mean, you can't get it to non-existent, but really low, then you actually lose the ability to kind of like recover in a normal way. So that's actually kind of the, the you know, inflammation certainly has a positive role for training and things like that. Um, I look at the body as, as I said earlier, the body wants to move. And part of movement is blood flow. So Mm. you need blood flow like everywhere. And when you have a chronic injury that causes a lot of tension, this is kind of how I view it. So you have all of your muscle fibers that want to line up. um, They're lining up like parallel, right? Like I'm interlocking my fingers and saying they're all parallel. And once you get, once they start getting a lot of tension, you start shortening the muscle and the fibers are now like gripping a little bit tighter, right? And you have... uh, the, the kind of muscle tendon junction and things like that, when there's more tension into tissue, there's a little bit less, think of like a sponge, right? Like if you're pulling the sponge tight, um, you don't get as much absorption through, through kind of the tissue. Right. And so, um, when you have a chronic injury, most of the time you have a lot of tight muscles and the tendons and stuff like that may be really tight around it. And then you have the inability to get new blood flow, take all of the lactic acid and all of the metabolites and things that need the toxins that need to be removed and bring fresh blood in there. 
So when I think of using ice on an area that's already really tight and overworked, I think of an area that's not going to be able to absorb blood very effectively. And now you're putting a cold compress on there that's going to like vasoconstrict even more and push more blood out. And then we're hoping that as it relaxes, like new blood comes in. But what if it's not very good at relaxing? Like we, we already know, I don't know how to turn those dings off. I can't hear them. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, so then you have a situation where you're like forcing blood out, but is new blood coming in? Cause one of the things that I had, I have, I don't know if I have what's called Raynaud's syndrome, but it's where your hands and feet get really cold. And like, if I was in the cold ocean for a while, I'd lose all blood flow to my extremities. Like my fingers turn, oh. start turning white. And so anyway, I had that, I mean, I still have it, but if I were to go in a really cold ice bath and then get out, I have like no blood flow in my toes, for example, if I'm just up to my waist and it'll take like forever before they start getting warm. I mean, it takes like 30 minutes, an hour, whatever. And I'm like, gosh, is this the most effective way to increase blood flow to an area that needs it? And in my mind, it was not. And maybe that's just set up, you know, how how my body's set up. But I'm thinking what I normally do, if I have an area that, if I have an athlete that has an area that needs to get blood flow or as in an area that's inflamed and hurts them, I I always go to contrast. So I'll do like three minutes in cold, one minute in hot. I'll do three to five rotations of that. And then normally I'll tell the athlete, especially if it's like an extremity where there's not great blood flow to begin with, I'll have them end on hot. So I want blood coming back into the area at the very end. And I think that that works a little bit better because you're creating a pump now and you're getting like, you know, vasoconstriction, vasodilation consistently. And then as that happens, you're cycling through blood a little bit more effectively. And then instead of leaving where you're constricted, you leave when the tissue's open and full of blood. And then the body's going to kind of start using, you know, that as, as a healing mechanism. So I think you're, I think you're, and one of the, I also talked to an acupuncturist, Amy Acuff, who is a high jumper. Who I think she went to like five Olympic games. She was an amazing high jumper who's married yeah. to Ty Harvey, who's, you know, the Essex pole guy. And um, she actually said, uh, Eastern medicine never uses ice. It's always heat and it's always increased blood flow through heat. And something about that resonates with me. I love saunas. I love hot tubs. I love, you know, all of the heat modalities, but ice is just not something that kind of my body loves all that much. So I'm on board with your thoughts on that. I mean, I, I do think like if you were to roll your ankle and get massive inflammation, throw some ice on it and try to get that inflammation out of there. But once the inflammation has gone, try to do more of like a contrast or something to just get blood flow to the tissue. Okay. So just to push back on the last part. So the, that like, so the inflammation, so the way I think of it is like the, just your body's natural response to me, I feel like body's much smarter than, you know, we give it credit for sometimes. So if the ankle, let's say, cause you had said acute onset. So for those who don't know, acute onset is something that like happens, like you rolled your ankle really bad and it immediately, like you hurt it. It's not like a, a long-term overuse injury. It happened like right away. So if you did roll that ankle and like you did get that inflammation, like isn't that the body's like response to be like, okay, we're going to tighten, we're going to lock this area down so it doesn't get hurt anymore. You know, we're going to swell it up. So it's almost like a cast, like creating like a cast around that ankle. And then isn't the inflammation, doesn't it contain like all the really good stuff to start the healing process? Yeah, I think the, I think, I think the prevailing thought, you can't clear out Okay, let's say let's say you tear a small uh, ligament or tendon or something in like an ankle roll. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to clear out all the inflammation. 
you're just trying to get rid of the excess inflammation that may not be like the, the, as the body signals to, Hey, bring inflammation here. It probably overdoes it a little bit. And okay. it, you're going to, you know, you're trying to move some of the stuff that's probably not going to be well utilized and trying to, cause you can't, you can't control all of it. So no matter what it's going to be going on, I think the idea is that the, the excess inflammation isn't that much, there's not much benefit to it. And then it would be more benefit to reduce that so that the body can kind of better handle the current level of inflammation and maybe start healing a little bit faster. Got you. Got so to you. speak. Yeah. So you are a hundred percent correct. And I, I mean, I always, I think about that a lot of times when we're in class and stuff where I'm like, God designed this thing. So he knows what's best for it. Right. So, but then at the same time, um, there are, I think there are ways to speed things up and there are ways to make things a little bit more efficient. Um, and there's probably, you know, if you look at it from that kind of model, it's like, well, maybe that's why man actually figured out how to do some of these things is because God's saying, Hey, do it this way. You know, I don't know. It's like, right. you know, steering people towards, uh, things that he wants people to understand and know, but, um, but yeah, I, I think overall the information inflammation is it's a signal to the body to start going to work and it's absolutely necessary. And if you didn't have any inflammatory response, you'd be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Um, but there can be a little bit more than is needed or necessary to have effective healing. And that's the stuff we're trying to get rid of. Yeah. And I think that the overarching, you know, thing for this scenario is this for an athlete in particular is you rolled your ankle, you, you know, did whatever to it, bunch of inflammation comes in. Let's say that that inflammation, let's say it's good and it's going to help you. Okay. There's if there's no timeline, then maybe just, you know, babying that thing and letting your body do its thing and, and do and slowly let it heal itself. Maybe that's the best, you know, way to do it, but we got to meet next weekend. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. So, so it's like, we don't got time to like sit around and, and just watch, do list or feel the slow process of our body trying to recover that injured area. So the cool thing is we have people like you and people like, you know, that athletes work with that are like, all right, well, you know, best case scenario is you just don't do anything and you let it, let it kind of heal on its own. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, we don't have that option. You know, Katie yeah. and Sandy might have a diamond league the next week and their income is dependent on them performing. Yeah. Know? No. And I guess the last thing that I would say about this, and it was an article that popped into my mind. This was, this was way before school, but there was an article that I read about hamstring injuries and they did a research study on it. They had three control groups. They had the control group who uh, tore a hamstring, did nothing. Then they had a control group who tore a hamstring and did only like physical therapy, like ice and ultrasound and stem and different modalities that a physical therapist would use. And then the third group did um, ice, stem and X or, uh, they did, they did the physical therapy modalities plus exercise. And that group by far healed the fastest. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you're saying best case, do nothing, like I'm pretty sure that's not best case because again, in the model in my head of don't let anything stay stagnant, the body needs to move. So if you have excess inflammation and you're not moving the body, you're not getting that inflammation cleared, then that kind of stagnates and pools and it's underutilized. Even the good stuff is, you know, that that's all in the inflammatory response. And like, you know, the, I think it's like pro thought, there's all sorts of things in there that, that are going to help heal. Um, those need to be moved around. Like if they get stagnant, they're just sitting there, they can't effectively go. I mean, they will, but it's not as efficient as it can if the blood flow is moving through the area and drawing all that stuff in. So anyway, this study showed that, 
exercising through injury, so long as you're not doing additional damage, um, increase the healing time significantly. And that makes sense. I think that's the takeaway. Like for all the younger athletes who are, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people who are going to get hamstring pairs. There's a lot of people who are going to get all these different things. When my athletes have any sort of like little hamstring issue, calf issue or whatever, I put them in the weight room and I make them lift really hard. And so long as the lifting doesn't cause pain. So if you have a big hamstring tear and it's like a bad tear and you go to squat and it hurts, you can't squat. Like that's going to be right. terrible if you're feeling pain. But if you're not feeling pain and you go through heavy lifting, um, I think that causes a healing response that's better than just, you know, sitting on the couch, elevating your leg with an ice pack. Right. Because I think one thing that I'm taking from basically the whole conversation so far is you need to signal your body properly. You mm -hmm. need to send your body the proper signals. If you send your body the signal that we're going to lay on the couch, then your body's going to adapt to laying on the couch. If you signal your body, hey, like, I know we're hurt a little bit, but we got to keep moving then your body's going to adapt to that, you know? And I think that that's a very important thing for people to understand too, is like signal your body properly. If you are in a profession where you need to move fast, you need to move fast, you know, like, and, and your body will respond to that. You know, mm -hmm. if you're, if you're, you know, running three miles, you know, three times a week and you want to be a fast, powerful pole vaulter, you're not sending your body the proper signals, you know, 100%. To, yep. to be able to do that. But so, um, what for just to kind of maybe put a little bit of a cap on this whole chiropractic thing. So like, how do you, do you plan to continue working with elite athletes, you know, as time goes on, because that, that starting a practice, it sounds like you're kind of like teeter tottering, uh, yeah. between a bunch of things right now. Well, a bit. I mean, back in the day when I was still, when I was at WSU, still coaching, but then thinking about chiropractic, I was like, well, I, there's a potential to have like an elite training facility where I practice out of it and maybe half the day I treat and then half the day I coach. Mm. Um, that's something that is intriguing to me, but also there's a little bit of, um, and you know, I think probably we'll get into a lot of the coaching stuff and that's probably right around the corner in this conversation, but there's, there's also, you know, certain things and limitations in coaching elites that, leaving my financial future to the hands of elite athletes is not something that I'm comfortable with. Um, right. and there has been, and, and I'll, I'm happy to get into some of it, but, um, there's been a lot of shift of who I'm actually working with this year. And currently I'm only coaching three pole vaulters right now, uh, which is Katie, Gabby Leon and Hussein Al-Hazam. So those are the only three pole vaulters that I'll be coaching this season. Yeah. So we can, we can unfold that as needed. Um, that's yeah, please do. I, that was a little bit of a shocker. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was an interesting, uh, set of events that all kind of cascaded and then kind of, kind of put us here, but, um, yeah, so we can, we can unfold that, but again, it just kind of depends on the state of the sport, the athletes who I'd want to work with, who'd want to work with me, where I'm living, if I have a facility. And then again, it's kind of like the, there's a lot of people who I think would like to coach elite pole vaulters. Mm. And what happens is they set up a club and then they start, you know, working 80 high school kids. Mm -hmm. And it's almost impossible to have a financial model with elites that works. It's almost impossible because there's so few elites who are making good money that you can't really do it. And so if you want to work with elites, a lot of it is kind of like you're kind of doing a fa you're trying to do a favor for them, especially with the amount that you end up charging them. 
Like I, I, I saw your guys, I looked at your guys' website the other day and like what I was charging my kind of base level elite is just a little bit more than you're charging your high school kids. Right. And, um, but I'm only working with a couple of them. It's like, well, you can't, that's not a model that works. Right. So then right. you try to have different contracts and it, it just becomes this kind of messy situation where some people are paying more, but they feel like they're getting the same service. And then the ones who you can't take, if you try to take a percentage of somebody who makes zero money, then you're getting zero from them. So that's even worse than charging a base level, but the base level is so low that I've done the math before. And it's literally like under $15 an hour. And then you've worked your entire career to become hopefully, let's just say a top 20 coach in the world. So I'm not gonna, I don't wanna, I'll just say I'm, 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 let's say I'm in the top 20 or in the top 20 in any profession is getting paid a lot per hour. And then you're getting like 12, 50 an hour. It's like, well, just go work at Chipotle. You know what I mean? Like right. it doesn't, it just doesn't work. And, um, and then on top of that, you start to deal with the emotions of the athletes and you're taking on all this stuff. And you realize that like your level of happiness in life and what you're doing is, you know, partly compounded by the people around you and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to deal with like athletes emotions. And it just becomes this thing where it's like, gosh, I don't know if the, you know, for certain athletes, the journey is absolutely worth it. And for other athletes, the journey is absolutely not worth it. And then your quality of life, you know, where does that lie within all of it? And, and, you know, if you're making NFL money coaching, that's great. And you can handle some of the stresses, but if you're not making much money and you're trying to help people, then it becomes, you know, emotionally not a, not a good situation. Um, it's just like, oh, maybe this isn't right. So the short, the short version to that question is I don't know how long I'll be coaching elites. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know what that looks like. I know that, uh, through Paris, there's a hundred percent focus on getting all of the athletes that I'm working with through Paris. And then after that, they'll be like, okay, where's everything, you know, where, where's, what's the lay of the land look like now? Yeah, I, I can understand, you know, cause I, I write all of Luke's training and I took on his training 100%, um, about almost, uh, after re at Reno, it would be a year ago. Yep. Um, and yeah, it's difficult because if you want to share in my dad always said, you know, if you want to share in the success of an athlete, you have to share sure, in the, the hard parts too, and the failures. And, and so <laughs> you have to shoulder all of that. And that's really a lot of pressure, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and I know that whenever Luke gets out of a workout and it wasn't the greatest workout you it's like that. i i really feel it a lot but i gotta run this company too and i gotta take care of my kids and i gotta be a good husband and i gotta go grocery shopping <laughs> you know like i mean like so that that's i think you and i are kind of in a little bit similar situations where it's like man i got this one thing over here that this is my career this is how i i'm making my the bulk of my living which you eventually you know if you were to open up a practice that would be that would be that but mm -hmm. then it's like okay well i want to be able to give 100% to that but then i also want to be able to give 100% to the athletes that i'm working with as well mm -hmm. and it's like man it becomes a very very difficult thing and i think it all boils down to your athletes you know my athlete being luke yeah. uh to be understanding and they need to understand, uh, you know, 
I, you know, that my entire world, I love my brother and, and I want him to do well, but my entire world like doesn't revolve around him. And, and he's very understanding of that yeah, and, uh, and grateful for the things that I, that I do and the meets that I can make it to and the travel that I do, um, you know, take on for him or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, it's, there's an emotional burden and I want to say burden. There's an emotional load or toll of coaching, especially emotion. All, all elite athletes are going to be emotional people, which is why they're elite athletes to begin with. Like that aspect of their personality drives them to a high level of work ethic and success. But that spills over to your emotion when you're out there and you're, the ups and downs are absolutely something that you're a part of. And some people, it's absolutely worth doing that. And then there's other people that it's just not worth doing that. But then you're trying to still support them in ways that they think, you know, that you think is going to be good for them. And it ends up being very thankless, I think, um, mm-hmm. in certain, certain aspects with certain people. Um, and then also... Like you said, your brother, because he's family, understands you, your time commitments, your load, and all of that stuff, and he respects it, where other athletes, even if they're paying a little bit more than your high school kids pay per month, are thinking, you're not giving me enough of your time. Why, you know, why aren't you here more? Like, this isn't what I signed up for. And they're paying very little, but because they have very little in their bank account, it seems like a lot. Right. And it becomes this thing where it's like... And that's not all the athletes, but that's, that's some of the athletes, you know what I mean? And when you try to run an elite group, the people who are having the most success are usually the most satisfied and the people who are having the least success, usually the least satisfied. Um, But the reason that they're dissatisfied is not because of you. It's because of their own things that they are like working on, which is why they probably haven't had, you know, much success. And they have to blame, they have to put the blame somewhere. And the last place that a lot of those athletes want to put the blame is on themselves. And so that's an area that um, becomes very burdensome as well. And you get the emotional brunt of somebody's either insecurities or, you know, abilities that aren't quite up to the standards they were once hoping for. Mm. And then you carry that burden and, or they resent you because they think that you didn't help them get where, you know, they wanted to go. And, uh, that's something that's very real in the elite world. And most elite athletes are very, in a, in a way that's necessary, they have to be very selfish because they have to be very self-focused. Mm. Um, but then they also have a tendency to, you know, I, I, I told this to my college kids when I got to WSU. I said, I said, and, and so I, I coach high jumpers and pole vaulters. And that's the, those are the only two event groups that I coach. I said, by a show of hands, who in here wants to be a Pac-12 champion? And it's like, everybody raises their hands. And I said, I promise you, not everybody in here is going to be a Pac-12 champion because a lot of you guys aren't going to work enough and hard enough to to do what's required to become that. And they just kind of all looked around. (laughs) And I was like, I was like setting, I actually really had a great group of people at WSU. And in fact, my, I personally think that my high jumpers and pole vaulters worked harder in the weight room and on the track than the majority of the team. And I hold state. I, we, it was kind of funny. My, my, um, my last meet, I had some issues with a couple of the coaches, not the head coach, but a couple of the other coaches, you know, talked down upon, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to coach, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And it was all like jealousy issues and it was all kind of garbage. But, um, at, at uh, at the end of the PAC 12 meet in my last year, our team as a team had four and a half points and my squad 
I think scored 19 and a half points, like in the last like hour. So we ended up, I think, I think there was one other triple jump point that got scored. So it was like five and a half points. And we ended up with like 24 and a half. Wow. And my pole vaulters and hydrogen scored 19 and a half. So it was nice because I was kind of like, okay, who's the one who's doing whatever, you know? And, but anyway, all of my athletes, I felt like did what was required. I mean, there was, you know, it's college kids. So you're not getting everybody like working hard, this, that, and the other thing. But anyway, what I found was that the athletes who complain about your coaching the most are the ones who are putting in the least amount of effort, seeing the least amount of return. And then they need somebody to blame because obviously they're like God's gift to like, you know, track and field, and they're going to be really successful no matter what. So then those athletes are the ones that say like, if I had a different coach, I would have done this. You know, this coach doesn't know how to coach me. I'm a different kind of athlete. It's like, okay, well, physiology doesn't, doesn't right. play that game. Right. And, um, and so, so you end up getting that kind of stuff. And I think that happens at all levels of sport. And you realize that that's just kind of like, I think it's kind of funny because as a coach, you know how you see, how old are your kids? You got, you got a couple kids, right? Yeah. Five and seven. So it's, to me, it's kind of like, as a parent, you're watching your kids and you're watching how they navigate life and they do something that's a little bit wrong. You see it from a mile away. They come up with their story of how, you know, whatever it was. And you're just like, well, I didn't eat the cookies. My wife didn't eat the cookies. The jar's empty and your brother was over at a friend's <laughs> house or whatever, right? And it's like, by a little simple deduction, you see what's going on and then you see their reaction to it and how they're trying to get out of it sort of thing. And I think even at like elite level coaching you're still like a parent watching all this stuff, like knowing everything that goes on. And like the athletes don't think that you see it because they're adults, right? So adults right. are usually better at hiding different things or whatever. And you end up like seeing all of, and I think it's because as a coach, you're putting the athletes into stress. So like in normal living, you don't see the responses of normal living uh, of a person day to day. But if you all of a sudden got into a really bad, stressful situation, you see a little bit more of like the true colors, right? Who's going to run away from the problem and who's going to run towards it trying to help people, right? Right. You're going to see that when you have a stressor put on you. And in the world of sport, you're having stressors put on you all the time. And so Mm -hmm. you see the athlete's response to stressors. And then there's an aspect of it where you hear what's going on behind the scenes of what this person's saying and what that person's saying. And I, by, I wasn't, I was never trying to coach just women. I was just trying to coach good pole vaulters. And it happened that I ended up getting, you know, a lot of women. Um, and this is a stereotype, but probably fairly accurate that there's a little bit more gossip that goes on, you know, in, in the, on the women's side of things. And so you start hearing all these comments and you start understanding who somebody is and you put all the pieces together and you're just like, huh, okay. Like this is all, it's, it's kind of like the parent looking at the child. You're like, I understand this more than you think. And I understand right. why your successes haven't been what you wanted them to be. And I understand all these different things. And the athlete doesn't see it yet. And they'll probably see it as they get older and they look back at their career. There are things that I look back on in my own career and I'm like, you idiot. Like right. if you right. could have just stayed out of that and, you know, stayed focused here, you probably would have done this, that, and the other thing. But, um, but anyway, that's a little bit of just a, a rant of, of, um, yeah, I I think uh I was talking with an athlete's uh one of our athletes uh high school athletes parent the other day they called and just wanted to check in and see, you know, what's going on, you know, you know she, you know, doesn't seem to maybe maybe she's having a hard time or whatever and you know, everybody wants to improve, man. Everybody wants to jump a foot higher, you know, like that's that's the whole thing and I understand that. Um and we were talking about it. And I, I wasn't trying to be boastful, but I just kind of said like, Hey, like 
this situation that they're in right now, like this, like we've we've got all these poles. We've got this really great, you know, facility now, and and we've got a group of really good coaches that are really motivated. And we sit around and just like we have meetings talking about how are we going to make our pole vaulters better and how are we going to make the experience better and and that's our job like that's what we do for our living now and 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 I was like so there really is no you can be reassured knowing that there really is no other like really better situation that you're going to be able to get but mm-hmm. even if you're in the best situation possible you're going to have lows you're going to have highs and you're going to have lows. It doesn't matter if the coach of the year, the <laughs> USATF coach of the year is coaching you, the best coach. You know what I'm saying? It, it's mm-hmm. going to go up and it's going to go down and it's going to go all around. And and that is, you know, what it is to be an athlete. And, and you know, in the broader scheme of things, that is just life in general mm-hmm. is that and the hard part about uh the hard part about that that I struggled with the most as as an athlete as well is not turning tail and running mm-hmm. you know and and you know you're in let's say that you're in this system and you're trying to get better and you're noticing that you're not you know performing the way that you want to perform and it's like well it can't be me it's it must be the system you know, it must be the system and, you know, let's try to change the system. Like it's worked for, you know, in our case over the last 35 years, you know, yes. it's it worked well and it's worked for tens of thousands of pole vaulters at this point, you know, yeah. like, and, yeah. and it's like, and it's like, it's probably not the system, you know, mm-hmm. like it's probably not the system. You probably just need to hang in there. You're probably going through a low spot. And if you hang in there long enough, it's probably going to come around. And I think a really good, you know, example of that probably is Katie, you know, like it's, it's just like, I'm sure the last, when you, you guys started working with each other a long time ago, but like, you know, 2017, basically yeah, 2017, I'm sure it probably hasn't been the greatest all the time. You know, (laughs) I remember her back then it wasn't, she wasn't. You know, I mean, she was a good vaulter, but she wasn't the Olympic champion and world championships gold medalist, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So to your point, there's a a few things that I learned as an athlete that I brought into coaching. One of the things that I learned was just like there's, there's, you know, a hundred ways, 99, what's, I don't know, skinning a cat, however however many ways to skin a cat is there? Is there a hundred? Is there a thousand? Okay. There's a hundred. There's a (laughs) hundred ways to skin a cat. Um, Training is similar. Right. So I remember when I was training, I had a certain training protocol that I was doing. And then I taught, I remember listening to Nick Heisung's training and he was doing like hill, he was doing all sorts of stuff like in mountains and doing the volume that he was doing. I was like, gosh, number one, I don't think I could do it. But number two, it's such a different way to train, yet it works. Mm. And then I would hear how Tim Mack was training or, and he might've been doing like a heavy gymnastic focus type style of training. Um, where, but there was a speed component to everybody, right? Everybody was trying to work on speed, but they all did it in really different ways. And I, I just remember a light bulb going off in my head going, it's not like the micro, the microscopic style of training as it is the general theme and who's pushing themselves, who's willing to feel pain and be uncomfortable in it and then be okay with it. And then just like run with it. You know, that's like a super important component to all training is that your body has to be able to do things that's never done before. 
And when you get people who are not willing to push themselves because it's uncomfortable and because it hurts, you're not going to see the type style of gains that you want to see. And um, so that's one of the things that I learned early on was if you have a training program that's effective at building muscle and getting somebody faster while not getting them injured, you have a really effective base. That base is going to continue to propel the athlete forward. And another thing that stuck out to me was Timmy Mack one time, this was in his run to his gold medal in Athens. He had stayed injury-free for like four years mm-hmm. or relatively injury-free. And he, he made a comment. He said, it's amazing what you can accomplish if you never have to stop training. And when I look at like, wow. Katie, when I look at Katie, for example, we have a foundation and a platform that allows her to get faster and stronger. And then we've kept her injury-free with a few little things here or there, like little ankle rolls and stuff. Um, but through the entire my time working with Katie, she's basically been injury free. And each year she's been able to work off of the year, you know, the previous year's successes and just had a nice ramp all the way to taking shots at the world record sort of thing and, you know, winning Olympic gold. And it's like as an athlete, sometimes you don't understand those trends and those trajectories. And you may not understand like the innate stuff that's built into a program that you don't know, like is effective. Um so it's, so it's kind of like, oh, this isn't that much. He's, you know, this is kind of like the last block, the last training block. Well, like, what do you want? You want something that's totally not tried out. That's going to be really jarring <laughs> right. on the body that we're going to throw in there for like a new training block, you know? It's just um, boring. It's yeah, this is boring. Thing. What do you want? Depth jumps off a 10 foot box to see if maybe we can, you know? And so anyway, it's like, it's kind of this very simple process. And in fact, I went to Dan Path when I was coaching and I told him, this was my mindset. I said, I said, I'm willing to fail as in my body break, trying to push the world record or trying to get to a level where I could go. And I look back at that comment thinking that sounds emotionally great. Like I'm all in, I'm so worth it. Yet I'm overriding this simple kind of foundational principle of stay healthy and just continue to get better over time, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was my emotion kind of overriding logic, right? I just want it so bad. I want to go so hard. I want to do this. And my emotion was overriding the logic. And he didn't end up doing that. And we didn't end up going crazy in any one direction. Um, but I would have gone there if I didn't have a coach to kind of like reel me in. You know what I mean? And then what the outcome was most likely I would have been injured and not achieved what I wanted to. Whereas if I just held the course and made slow progression over time, I, I might have, you know, been able to, to get a little bit higher. And so anyway, like you said, that's kind of what Katie's done. And that's kind of a, a big part of my training. It's like you have to push the weight room. If you're not pushing the weight room, the training load basically isn't enough. And to me, there's only a couple of ways to get strong. One, you do it in the weight room. Two, you do it in kind of like a plyometric-based, you know, heavy program. Well, the thing about plyometrics um, over time is they're really tough on joints, right? It's great. It's great training. I'm not trying to say we do hurdle hops. We do little like single leg bounds. We do, you know, good plyo stuff. But it's it's really hard on the body. And if you do a lot of that stuff, you can start, you know, getting injured pretty easily. And in right. fact, most, you know, triple jumpers, I mean, at some point they're going to have an Achilles rupture or they're going to have, you know, a knee reconstruction <laughs> and because they're plyo heavy, you know, type of people. Oh, and, yeah. um, and so anyway, it's like kind of one of those. So I try to incorporate all the aspects of the best part of plyos and the best part of strength training and do it in a way that's a tried and true program that comes from a lot of, you know, like decades worth of research from like Dan Path, Lauren Seagrave and all these guys who've helped put together kind of the base or the foundational aspect of the training program. And then I plug and play different exercises in different days to just make sure the athlete is first and foremost healthy so that they get to continue on the craft of pole vaulting 
and do it in a way where they can figure out their technical model most effectively while still getting you know fast and strong. And so for some people, that's not enough. Some people want more. For some people, it's too hard and they don't want the heavy lifting. And it's just like you realize that the mind that's in the athlete that you're coaching is what lends itself to the success, right? So Katie's mind being able to um, – she complains probably more than anybody on the planet about what we do, <laughs> but she always does it. And, you know, she always gets it done. And I'm sure there are days where she doesn't push in the weight room as much as I'd like to see her, but the trend is always positive and she's always getting stuff done. And in fact, if she doesn't, if she has a question or, you know, isn't feeling it, she'll always reach out and be like, Hey, I'm feeling this. I don't think I should do this. Is there something else we can do instead of just like taking matters into her own hands and just like figuring out what to do. And I've always really respected that aspect of her because, I'm always in the loop. Like I always kind of know what's going on. And so I can help kind of navigate those bumpier waters and, you know, do a plan B workout if she needs it, stuff like that. And so it's just been, yeah, it's just been the slow, steady process that I feel like it's just tortoise and a hare. You know what I mean? It's just like the slow, steady process that wins the race. But that's not what people want to hear, Brad. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. I know. There's too much emotion in, in there's, there's too much logic in that. And everybody needs to be emotionally driven right now as in the state of the world and being mad at everything all the time. And there was, I, right before I got on the phone, I read an article of like, have you seen the new avatar avatar two? No, 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 I haven't. I, I thought it was great. I it's been getting all sorts of like hate and James Cameron's this and that. And there was a deal where somebody said that James Cameron culturally appropriated the blue aliens like culture. I was like, oh, where boy. are we? <laughs> what is going on here? Um, but no, the emotion, you know, and I get when people are emotional and, and all that stuff. It's just when you when you are that emotional, you get blinded to logic. And then when you don't understand the logic is when you kind of get lost in the weeds. And and I kind of hold true to that. And so it's kind of like as a, as a coach, your job is to try to help negate some of those those emotions that don't make sense. Um, and then there's a point where you you just can't. And, and uh, yeah. So how often do you have to like talk Katie off a ledge? Oh, hopefully less now that her wedding's going to be completed here pretty soon. <laughs> um, no, she, uh, you know, Katie, again, is she's just a very emotional person. And that's what you need in an elite athlete, because the emotion that they feed off of is the emotion that allows them to perform well and, you know, jump high under pressure and all those kinds of things. Um, but it doesn't turn off with elite athletes outside of the track, you know what I mean? So other areas of life will be equally emotional in different ways. And with Katie, um, there are days where you watch, you know, if, if you're in a, you, you see this Luke all the time, he comes in, you see his body language and you know what you're going to get out of him that day. Yeah. Right. It's just like part of it, right. You see, you know, the person well enough to know good mood, bad mood, you watch him do a few movements as a nervous system on or as his nervous system asleep. And then you're like, okay, this is the quality of what I'm going to get out of it. So with Katie kind of watching her come in, hearing her talk, seeing what she's doing, it's pretty clear whether it's going to be a good day or a bad day. And sometimes on the bad days, like I have to, you know, wait for the, 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 the kind of breakdown of that day, which you kind of knew was coming or whatever. Um, and you just kind of let it, you know, you let it ride, you let her kind of go through the emotions that she needs to kind of process and you talk her through some things. And then the next time generally she'll come in and just crush it and have an amazing session. And then those sessions are great because you get to be like, remember Monday, are you, do you still think you're behind? You know what I mean? She's like, no, I don't know. And then all of a sudden it'll come out. Well, this happened and that happened. And my mom called me that day. And none of those things come out the day that you're, you know, trying to coach and having that heart to heart. But then you realize that all of the stuff that caused whatever emotion, anybody, you know, I'm not just saying that 
pin it on Katie, but that somebody was experiencing most of the time, it's like life. Right. And they don't know how to process it in life. So then they bring it into sport and then their session goes poorly. And then you realize it was just a life problem. And then, you know, you're trying to help them navigate life problems. And when those life problems go well, then all of a sudden sport comes back. hundred percent. Yeah. I, we had a, uh, a situation not last week, but the week before where uh, Luke got his car stolen. So he oh. like, show, he like shows up to the workout and he's like, Hey, or no, he calls me and he's like, Hey man, uh, now we're going to have to rearrange training this week. I got my car stolen and mm. turns out that it was a TikTok trend. To steal um, a car? Uh, they're called the Kia boys. Oh, wow. The Kia boys on TikTok. Yeah. So I'm sure you have a TikTok and I'm sure that you can go and follow them and, and, <laughs> and see what the Kia boys are all about. But I guess these Kia boys, they like go and they, they share... Like, I guess there's some hack to be able to steal a Kia or a Hyundai, which, you know, produced by the same company. Okay. And uh, so the Kia boys stole Luke's car, just went on a joyride and then like crashed it somewhere. And then, and then poor Luke, you know, doesn't have a car to get to training. And yeah. And so like for like the next week or so, it was like, oh man, you know, maybe a week later it was like, oh man, I wonder, you know, Luke's not. He's not clicking, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, remember the Kia boys, you know? Boys. And, and then I was like, you know, where are you at with this whole thing with the Kia boys? And, and he's like, uh, yeah, they've, you know, I'm, I am on the phone all day long trying to figure out if we're going to get the car fixed, if we're going to do this, I'm in a rental car and the rental car smells like cigarettes and all, you know, and all of these, like this big giant whirlwind. And then plus, you know, the work that he does for rise. And, and so I was just like, okay. You know, as a coach, I just have to be able to reflect on that mm -hmm. and and not come at him and say, like, you're being a wuss. You need to suck it up like this is ridiculous. You know, you need to come at it more of like, hey, man, like cut yourself a little bit of slack dealing with a lot of stress. You know, your body deals with stress. It doesn't care if you have a workout. It doesn't mm -hmm. care if you have to pole vault today. Yeah. You know, the stress is there. Your nervous system doesn't just like uh, give preferential treatment uh, to certain muscle group. You know, your nervous system acts as a whole and yeah. and and you're going to maybe not be as poppy and, and this and that and the other. And it's no, no question that whenever an athlete is relaxed, no stress, they're in that flow state. That's when they have their best performances you know absolutely it's because their whole life is kind of coming together to to have that good performance at that time yeah um, that's not always true but yeah that's really it's really hard it's a hard thing to to deal with as a coach what you were saying though because when they walk in maybe the coach is having a great day mm. and then it's like ah well they're not looking so good today <laughs> Yeah, looks then like you I, leave. Looks like I'm having a bad day too. <laughs> yeah, looks like today's bad. Looks like today's bad. No, it's so true. And you know, there is emotional interplay that goes on between the athlete and coach. And sometimes you can turn the athlete and they leave with a smile. Sometimes they turn you and you want to go punch the wall. You yeah. know, it just it just right. is what it is. But it, I learned pretty early on that 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 performance is a reflection of life. And when you're in a bad state of life, and that can happen from any you know number of places or whatever, usually you have bad performances and vice versa. And sometimes you can, like, I've thought this for a while, sometimes you can run on nitrous. Nitrous is, for those who don't know in the car world, like a really high combustible material that burns really hot. And so you can't run it for very long or you'll burn out your engine, essentially. Um, 
you can fuel yourself on anger and frustration for a little bit and get some really great practices out of it, but you do that for too long and you're going to bury yourself and that happens. And so anyway, you can have, you know, like, like if your brother, if your brother was like really mad at the Kia boys, he might plant the biggest pole he's ever planted. You know what I mean? He's taking out his frustration in the vault. But you can only be mad at the Kia boys for so long because their their name is so ridiculous. And it sounds like, <laughs> you know what I mean? That you can't hold that anger in for too long. And what's and what this is what's going to happen. Hey, Luke, hold on, buddy, because your insurance is going to kick in and you're going to get a better car than your Kia was. I honestly yeah. don't think I've ever in my life heard of anybody who had a car stolen or totaled in a crash that didn't upgrade to something better. Right. So, Luke, you got a blessing in disguise. You're going to be rolling in like a, you know. Some Mercedes. sort of Lexus or Mercedes, <laughs> yeah. or, you know. Maybe not. If you get that. a Ferrari, I'll quit and start working for Rides here pretty soon. But, but, um, but no, it's true. And and so and so, I think that the you know the takeaway and you know it was funny because as you said, hey, let's do a podcast again. I was thinking back. I was like, maybe I should listen to my other one to even hear what I talked about the first time. Mm-hmm. And then I saw Mondo's new podcast come on. I was like, no, nah, I would rather listen to that than me. Yeah. So I, I didn't listen to mine. I listened to Mondo's. And the reason I even brought him into the conversation was because he is for a 23 year old, or maybe he's still 22 and he's about to be 23. He's got such a mature understanding of not only the sport, but his life as it surrounds the sport and like understanding of his, you know, he was talking about going into worlds, how comfortable he was, how Desiree was there with him, how it was like a normal meet. He was talking about how, um, you know, he, he does things to kind of balance out life. And then you ask him a question of like, what are the things that you have to be cautious of? And he was, he was talking about how he had to be reminded, not reminded, but he was, he wanted to focus on the love of the sport being the driving motivator for his success, not like the business aspects of it. Mm. I'm just thinking, gosh, not only has he done a phenomenal job, but his parents have obviously done a phenomenal job keeping him focused and humble and understanding the important aspects of what he's doing. And as a result of that, as you just stated, his life seems like it's very well balanced and maintained in a way that he can move forward in a stress-free environment. And as a result of that, he's looking at world records whenever he puts his mind to it. Right. You know, and it's interesting because I have like seen the 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 once in a generation style athletes like a Sydney McLaughlin um, Mondo, for example, stuff like that. When you hear them speak, you realize there's this underlying maturity that they have that other athletes at the same age group are nowhere near having. Mm. And I'm like, where does that come from? And why is that? But it's definitely there. And when you hear him talk, you're like, I don't know how he has those kind of high levels of like life understanding at the age that he is, or like, as it relates to sport, where it's like, when I was 22, 23, I was just running around trying to prove how good I could be. Right. And it wasn't, and I, at the time I thought it was how good I could be, show the world how good I could be, but it was obviously just me trying to prove to myself that I was good. You know what I mean? Like all of these things. And, but I had no idea, you know, and as I look back and I can understand my own path and my own career, and then I hear somebody at his age, do the things that he's done. And then here is like clear understanding of what's going on. I'm like, it's not surprising that he's doing what he's doing. You know, he's got, he's just got pieces and he's figured out how to navigate some stuff that, you know, the rest of us are all just trying to chase when we are in a situation to be able to try to, you know what I mean? Get to the, get to the point where everybody wants to go. Yeah. He, I always talk about his supreme confidence too. Like he just has a deep, deep confidence that is, I don't think anybody can really shake it, you know, like yeah. just is like 
so incredibly confident. Maybe not. I would like to just be a fly on the wall and like, see like, okay, like, you know, what's going to be really, uh, sorry, that was a broken up thought. Um, what's going to be really interesting is when they finally release that born to fly documentary, because Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's shown in some of the previews that there are some like kind of behind the scenes, you know, and it shows Mondo getting emotional and 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 things like that. So it would be interesting. Nobody gets well, away from from the hardships of life. Yeah, you know? I think I think make no mistake for Mondo to do the things that Mondo's done. He's got emotions like crazy levels of emotions, right? And yeah. just because he has an interview that seems he's very level headed and this and that, like. To go jump 621, plan an 11-7 with chalk in your hand and be 170 pounds and get tossed in the air like that, you're wild. Like, he's wild. Like, right. make no mistake when you hear a level-headed interview that the guy's not wild. Mm-hmm. But his ability to harness that emotional energy and put it into what he's doing, I think, is really good. And so if you see a blow up or you see whatever, yeah, there's of course there's going to be that because he's a pole vaulter. You know what I mean? Like, he's wild at heart. but. Um, you know, and, and one of the things I think that's funny, and I kind of went through this in my career, and I think pole vaulters, you know, at least people in the pole vault community, like when you're in it, you think all eyes are on you. You know, like you got to respond on Instagram and social media to let people know what you're doing. Like mm, people probably aren't looking at you as much as you think they are. But when you're in it, it's your whole world and you're putting your heart and soul into it. Certain yeah. people may just love it and, and all that stuff. Certain people could really care less. Like it's just, you know, it's just sport. But, right. um, but anyway, yeah, it'll be an interesting documentary. I just think that his understanding, like, it was funny because I was just, you know, as I was listening to it, I was like, gosh, man, he, like, having the ability to have hindsight, look back at my own career and understand competitive mindsets and all that kind of stuff. Like, he's got a really good understanding of so many things. And it's just not surprising he is where he is. And it's going to be really interesting to see how things move forward, especially as the, you know, how like, I don't know if you're, if you were like a Conor McGregor fan. Love Conor McGregor. So I don't know if I love him or hate him. I just, you know, know a bit about him. It's entertaining, man. That absolutely. I mean, I shouldn't say he's a he's a moron at times, but oh, he is sure. so entertaining, man. Yeah, and, and even like even a guy like Eminem, who's kind of off the rockers these days, you listen to his old stuff and it was just aggressive and this and that, and it kind of like set him up. And you see this, I feel like you see this with musicians a lot. Their old albums are great because they hadn't made it yet. And then right. once they make it, the fire dims a little bit. Right. So Conor McGregor is trying to be what he became. Then all of a sudden he gets dethroned. And now it's like, I don't know, is he is he still that same guy? We'll probably find out in the next little bit. But there's a part of that where it's like the, you know, the certain aspects of life dim the fire. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. a wet blanket over it. And so it's like I know Mondo was saying he wants to compete until 2032 Olympics. Let's say it'll be interesting to watch. Can the fire stay lit that long, especially when the sponsorship comes, the money comes, all these things come. And it, let's say he's still, uh, you know, jumping a foot higher than all of his competitors. Like do the one fifties still get the same amount of respect that they get this year? You know what I mean? But in, in the year 2030. Yeah. Sort of deal. It's, that's going to be interesting because that's a long time away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a long period of time. You know, and I was very taken back by that. I thought he was going to be like a Usain Bolt, like just kind of like, you know, do his thing, you know, go on his, go on his run and maybe just retire just a little bit early. But yeah, you know, and he is young, like you said, but I, 
I think that's why like part of me is kind of just like throwing out these little challenges to him. Like, Hey, come yeah, in yeah. at six meters. <laughs> like, yeah, like, do it before you're done. Like, we, we gotta yeah. like, we gotta like, I mean, if you're going into every single competition and you're beating everybody, you know, so by such good margins, you know, I, like you said, like what, what, what is, what comes after that? Like, yeah. do you just try to see if you can be undefeated for like, I don't know, years in a row or mm -hmm. like what, what is the challenge? Like you've, you've won all of these things. Well, he still, he still has some work to do, uh, for like, against like Bupka's, you know, records and stuff like that with like uh world championships and, and yeah. stuff like that. So I guess that's motivating probably. <laughs> Yeah, I think, the, I mean, the real question is, in my opinion, and I talk about this to, I talked about the other day to a coach who I was speaking with, but also I talk about it to my, my athletes, like the fire is the most important thing. Like, is the fire there? Is the fire not? How long, how can you stoke the fire and how does the fire stay lit without you having to try to continue to light it? You know what I mean? So it depends right. on whether his successes in the sport dim the fire because he's like, gosh, what else is there left? Like once he jumps that 630 bar and then he has to like wake up and hit a weight session and then go hit a bunch of 150s and create a bunch of lactic acid. And he's like, nobody's been close to me for the last three years. Like it, what pushes you at that point? And he's most likely going to have to figure out like down deep what that is. And he'll, you know, he'll have people look, there could be, you know, there could be mono 2.0 all of a sudden pushing him, And then all of a sudden we have this phenomenal thing in track and field that happens. Right. Right. And I, you know, I don't know if there's one of those guys on the horizon, but when you look at athletes who've been like, like, and again, I'll pick up, pick out like Sydney McLaughlin, all of a sudden she ran a 50 point in the hurdles, which is like fast for an open 400. Yeah. And it's like now next year, she's going to run the four. Okay. Why? Well, the four, she's obviously not being challenged in the four hurdles and she's already set a world record to a level that is probably unattainable for the next however long. So then she's going to turn her attention to something else. And like Ashton Eaton, when Ashton Eaton was a decathlete, um, he took some time off and ran the four hurdles, for example, it was like, you, you know, everybody wants to dabble in something new. And then he did all the things he wanted to do. And then he retired early. And so it's like, it's going to be interesting to see just the progression and it, you know, only time, only time will tell and we'll see like how that goes and stuff. But I think, um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see just how, how the next few years unfold and then what he's able to do. And I mean, I think everybody in the world knows he can jump a 630. And I always yeah. thought, I always thought that a 630 was, was an attainable mark in the pole vault. Um, but, uh, yeah, it'll be, it'll be cool to watch it. I mean, he's certainly entertaining to watch. That's for, yeah. That's for and you, you sure. can't, you can't try to light that fire. You can't be like sitting there clinking rocks together, like trying to be like, okay, <laughs> let's, let's see if I can light this fire to jump on an 11 yeah. seven, you know, like, and my, my coach, uh, one of my good friends and one of my old coaches, high school coach, he, uh, messages me the other day and he's like, Hey, Hey man, I signed up for another hundred miler. Let's go. Come on. Oh. Let's do it. Let's do it. And and I've already done one. And yeah. and I and I was like, and I've been thinking about it. And I got this meniscus situation with my right knee right now that I'm trying to heal up. And and so I told him, I said, Hey man, uh, let me get back to you. I'm gonna see how this meniscus reacts over the next month or so. Um, and then number two is I need to see if I truly want to finish a hundred mile race because you don't finish a 100 mile race unless you truly want to finish it. 
Mm-hmm. And it's the same exact thing that, you know, all these pole vaulters come up against later on in their career. Like you don't jump 580 or 590 or, or you know, 490 or, uh, you know, five meters for women if you don't really want to do it, you know, mm-hmm. and if that fire just starts to kind of slowly start to fizzle out. There's nothing you can really do to rein it back in. And and no. it's it's just kind of one of those natural paths in life. And unfortunately, once you stop, about five years later, you'll be like, you know, maybe I should start training again. <laughs> <laughs> Already gone, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> Already no, gone. <laughs> train has left the station at that point. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think it's I think it's, you know most athletes i think most i think all, i i would i would almost be willing to label all elite athletes as like neurotic in a positive way right i mean it's, yeah. it's you're crazy you're just you know, you're you're pausing life and you're doing everything you can to attain this one goal and you know it becomes it becomes a neurotic pursuit and that's what breeds crazy performances and massive successes and all that kind of stuff and then there's an aspect when those things become achieved and then life starts happening that i think it's i think there's a a natural time to like lay down you know, the world can't understand it probably if they haven't been in the situation of being like an elite athlete and pushing yourself day in and day out forever. Um, but there are times where I feel like I, I, a lot of times I'll use the example. So I don't know if you've ever been like Scottsdale, Arizona, but I lived in Phoenix for a little while. We go down to Scottsdale was where all the nightlife was and stuff like that. And you'd go to Scottsdale and you would see, um, you'd see like, you know, 50 something plus women in high heels with a lot of body work done, you know, breast enhancements and lip enhancements and walking around. And you're just like, gosh, still like, you're still (laughs) here. You're still out here doing this kind of stuff where I feel like there's a natural, there should be a natural time. Like life progresses in a very natural way. Right through your young twenties and thirties, you're trying to do all these different things. And then you get married and then you have kids and your focus should now be on your kids. And then those kids and your grandparents, and you just kind of like progress naturally and age naturally. And I think that sometimes there's a beauty in an athlete, like achieving the things they want and then having the family and then like giving, like, like Usain did, like Usain didn't hold on too long, but he probably achieved all the things that he wanted to. And he like bowed out of the sport gracefully and everybody can look at his career and be like, Oh my gosh, that was crazy. I can't believe he did all that stuff, but he didn't run until, you know, his, the wheels fell off. And then it was like kind of sad that he was still out there. You know what I mean? That's hard to watch. It is hard to watch. There's a fine line. There's a fine line to that. It's like Jordan maybe played a little bit longer than he needed to, but I respect, or I respect everything that he did and that the fire was still burning so hot that he couldn't, he couldn't retire. And maybe that's like a Tom Brady or whatever, you know, like, they're still out there doing it, but it's like, eh, like if Brady had left after the Bucks won the Super Bowl in that year and he was still like 42 or whatever, you're like, holy cow, you know, and then now it's like, mm, I'm not sure if he should, you know what I mean? But yeah. it just depends on the athlete's fire. And I don't know if he still got it then keep going. Yeah. And that's a difficult time uh, just in, in life because you go on to these new you know, these new phases of life. And, and I think sometimes I think like competing at a high level is, is a blessing. And sometimes it's a curse because now I always look, I I always have something to compare myself to that is very high. Like it's a very high standard 
that I always will have to live the rest of my life comparing myself to that standard. Mm. You know, I look in the mirror sometimes. I'm like, dude, come on. I just want those abs just to hang on a little bit longer, man. They're they're just <laughs> slow. Mine are mine are under there. <laughs> they're under there somewhere. I can feel them when I flex. I just can't see them. Yeah. I just want to see them, man. Yeah. And I I I I'm just like, but then I start, and then I think it it's it's just like coming into like a slow acceptance mm. of where you're at in that phase of life and being like content with that. And I know that sounds terrible because there's people out there that are like, dude, don't ever be content, yeah. you know, always need more and stuff like that. And, and I'm like, man, well, I am comparing myself to whenever I was, you know, like 7% body fat. Yeah. Yeah. It's not you a know? great comparison. Hormones like, are raging. They are the highest right? of your life. You're I know. at your pinnacle peak of athleticism. I know. And I look ah. in the mirror and I'm like, oh gosh, I definitely am not what I once was. Look at me. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. and I'm not I'm not like terribly out of shape. I I'm in pretty good yeah. shape, but uh I just am like, man, I'd love to see those abs again. That'd be great. Yeah, I think I think that uh there's a you know, there's a time and a place for everything. And once the time passes by trying to hold on all you can to it, because sometimes you can put yourself into a sad state of affairs. You know, when I, yeah, when you I, end up on in Scottsdale with, you know, blown up <laughs> lips. <laughs> you mean a blown up lips, and you're the guy with like six chains and his unbuttoned shirt. He's driving, they call them 30K millionaires, but they're driving a fancy car and then they go to their apartment. And you're like, what is happening down here? That's um, crazy. But, you know, just image chasers and stuff. And you're just like, yeah, you were supposed to outgrow this phase. And for some reason, you didn't. And um, yeah. But, and but, you yeah. just got to look at the, the younger generation and be like, yep, well, good for you, man. Good for you. And, <laughs> yeah. and enjoy it. Live it up. You know, every workout, take your shirt off, you know, <laughs> enjoy it, man. It's funny you say that. Cause like, you know, we were all there, right. When you're down at 7% body fat, your shirt's off, the sun's out and you're running and you think, and you like, look, but you get a little bit older and then you look around and you're like every track and field sprinter slash jumper is shredded. You're all the yeah. same. It's all the yeah. same. I know. <laughs> you know, I know. Everybody's got their shirt off. Everybody's got their abs out. You're like, Oh wow. I look like that guy and that guy and that guy and that guy. But you're like, no, I'm, I'm special. I'm Look at right. this 7%, you know, <laughs> uh, it's ridiculous. But it's the fun. worst, the worst part about that whole thing is when you reflect on it, you look back and you're like, I remember spending the majority of my time thinking that I was out of shape back then, <laughs> like <laughs> thinking to myself, dude, 7%. Oof, I, dude, I mean, you're not, you're not going to be, you want to be the best. If you want to be the best. <laughs> You can't be a 7%. Gosh, if you want to be the best, I need to endanger my organs. I need to be that lean. <laughs> yeah, right. I need no visceral fat on me at all. <laughs> right. Um, no, and, and that's, yeah, that's that, the truth of that too is like, then you can deplete yourself. You know, I think you, you and I had talked about that maybe in the first podcast of going crazy with food. You know what I mean? And it's kind right. of like the idea of the pursuit of perfection can sometimes push you further from it. And, um, and then I think, you know, that like there is that acceptance when you get a little bit older where it's like, well, perfection is probably just a myth in the first place. So let's just mm. try to be, you know what I mean? The best I can be in the areas that I think are now important. And if the areas that are as important to you now are the same as when you were 25, then you should probably reevaluate some things anyway. Yeah. And have objective goals too. Like objective goals are so much easier to obtain than subjective goals because like, what is like, what is, I, I talked with Luke about this, uh, 
you know, last year, last year at this time, he was, he was just thin, man. He was just like, mm-hmm. it was just like, you could just break him and he was mm-hmm. hitting these poles and, and he wasn't hitting poles. The poles were hitting him, Jeez. you know? And, yeah, and yeah. I was, I was like, man, you know, it's okay to have a little something there, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, you, you don't want it to be too much, but if you, if you, you know, you need to have a little bit of, of room for error. Like if you train really hard one day and you're lifting and you're stressing your, your body a lot, lifting heavy weight or whatever, and you have very small amounts of body fat, you know, your body might have a hard time recovering from that, you know? Sure. So having, having a little something is, is, is okay, but you can obviously go in the opposite direction too. Yeah. Well, there should be a, tr- there should be a natural progression, uh, throughout the course of the season. Right. And he should be at his leanest at a championship season. And then in his preseason, he should put on a little bit of weight. He should come in a little bit with a little bit more fat on his body purposefully done. Like I've actually sent Katie this one. I don't know what year it was. I think it was the Olympic year. She showed up and as all athletes would be going in Olympic year fired up and she came in too thin. And I literally told her, I need you to go eat as much as you can and take a week off. And so she went to Florida to visit her, her fiance and, um, I called him and I said, dude, like, seriously, just like feed her milkshakes, <laughs> drink beer. I don't care what it is. Like get her, get some weight on her. And so yeah. that was a goal and Katie loves food. So it was not a problem for her to <laughs> embrace that advice. And she did, she came back heavier. Um, and I, you know, I can't say that it did anything, but you know, she won the Olympics. I mean, it was kind of a deal where it's like, she did gain some weight. She did get some cushion. She did have a relatively injury free season. And, um, and I think that's important and especially for women and especially like with, you know, any of the listeners from, you know, women pole vaulting can be like women's gymnastics and it can be like, you know, some of those sports where, especially if they have the wrong coach who's barking at them that they're too, you know, there's, they need to be thinner and they need to, you know, eat less or only eat salads and stuff like that. You know, you get into, you get into that trap of, of, uh, eating disorder and, and not having the calories needed to you know, safely pole vault as in your body's going to break because it can't handle the demands of the sport. And, um, you know, so hopefully that I think that newer coaches are understanding that and that the older coaches are, you know, kind of retiring who used to be, be that way, but, um, it's a real thing. And it obviously caused a lot of injuries and harm and mental harm and all that stuff. And hopefully, yeah, hopefully people understand that a little bit better as nutrition and all of that gets a little bit more advanced. Absolutely. Let's uh, take a bathroom break real quick. You good on that? All yep. right. We'll catch you back here in a couple. It's pretty hard not to see that Essex vaulting poles have been popping up everywhere. If you don't know what Essex vaulting poles are, they are the yellow ones. Now you probably understand what I'm talking about. Essex has been grinding hard over the last five to 10 years and has really developed a pole that is very high quality and performs well enough for some of the best in the world to vault on them. Brad Walker, who you are listening to right now, coached Katie Najat to an Olympic gold and world championships gold using Essex vaulting poles. If you want to purchase Essex vaulting poles, you can go to ust-essex.com and click where to buy at the top to find a dealer near you. We're back. Uh, yeah. Um yeah, I figure, well, hopefully this, hopefully we feel like we're, we're two retired athletes, just, just, just talking about stuff, just having a good combo. So apologize to any of the young pole vault, pole vault crew. Who's just, you know, searching yeah. for all these pole vault gems, but we can, we can pole vault specific it up. If you have anything, uh, you know, to be honest front. with you, this, uh, this podcast is just where 
it goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. and I I I I think I don't know. I just I enjoy talking with you. Appreciate just it. Just personally. Yeah, yeah. And uh so whenever two people that you know ha- are sort of like-minded get together just could tend to <laughs> tend tends to start going crazy. So yeah. I I would like to uh, I don't want this to be like a, a soap opera or anything, but mm-hmm. I would like to just kind of get some sort of uh explanation as to what kind of went down with you and and Sandy and and how how that all is happening cuz the only reason I bring it up first of all I want to say I love Sandy I've done a podcast with her and she's an incredible person in pole vaulter and um but one of my biggest questions was how do you manage coaching the two best women in the world yeah no it's a great yeah. question and and Sandy and I had a uh, we had a great conversation kind of as it all went down and I uh, I think highly of her abilities and skills. And I know that this is like kind of the right thing moving forward. Um, so from my perspective, we did, I, I look at her year as a tremendous success because the year that she had kind of at the Olympics, uh, she, you know, got third, it was, there was, it was questionable if she was going to make the team. She ended up getting third at the trials, I believe. Um, that's what she got that year, right? She, Katie. And then, um, I believe so. What, yeah. when did you guys, just so everybody's clear, when did you guys start working together? I forget when that was. We started right after Tokyo. Yeah. The, the, the right season. After yeah. Tokyo. Yep. So she, she had moved over and, uh, she showed up though. She had had, she had had an, and she had had the pole blew up in Tokyo. It hit her hip. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she had some, some tearing and scarring in the sartorius muscle, which is a quad muscle that runs kind of uh, across the quad. And, um, she was having a lot of hip pain when she first got there. So the preseason, it wasn't shaky. We were getting stuff done, but there was a little bit of pain and things were happening and she had to get a, you know, series of injections and all of that stuff. Um, when she was working with Compton, she wasn't doing any Olympic lifting. She wasn't doing any plyos cause she had a lot of back pain. She had several epidurals and things in her back. And I'm sharing this stuff because I know she's already shared it. I'm trying, you know, certainly yeah. not trying to, yeah uh, say anything that, that is new or that, uh, you know, anything like that. So anyway, we were kind of piecing her together. Like I said, putting her in a program that has a strong foundation that can get her through healthy. We were increasing her cleans or her Olympic lifting. We were doing some light bounding back into the program. And then at the same time, trying to like fix, you know, a technical model that we, you know, in a ways that we thought were going to be good for her. Um, and from, from all accounts, she was undefeated until world champs. So like she hadn't lost a meet the entire season. And then she lost world champs and then, you know, kind of slid. You could tell that, that affected her mindset quite a bit. Uh, so the, the back half of her season post world champs didn't go as well as, I mean, she got second, you know, places it wasn't bad. She just didn't win things that she could have won, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that, you know, Sandy is, is a, she, a strength of hers is her emotion. Um, and, but the emotion of not doing what she wanted to from world champs on was louder than the successes in the season. Mm. And as a result needed to do better and needed to do more. And she had basically called me in for a meeting, um, and just kind of let me know, like, we need to do more and I need a little bit more of your time and this and that. And my time with school is like, really, it's just, it's crazy. Literally like, it's crazy how I've never been in a situation where I've been this busy and I haven't felt like I've had time to do things that I wanted to do. And so I didn't think that I could meet what she needed. Um, and I, she had a couple ideas that I wasn't quite as on board with that she wanted to do. Uh, and then we started talking a little bit about the technical model and throughout the conversation, I had realized that 
um, where like when Katie came, she was just like, tell me what to do. But when Sandy came, Sandy's likes to have a little bit more control and likes her own, you know, reasons and why she wants to do the things she wants to do. That is a little bit outside of the areas that I want to focus on for her. So we realized there was a little disconnect between how she wanted to proceed and how I wanted her to proceed. And that my time, my time constraints couldn't like meet what she needed slash wanted. And then kind of realizing like, because of those issues, our working relationship was going to be affected because if I couldn't give her the things that she wanted, then obviously she wasn't going to be able to buy in the way that she needed to, you know, going into season two. And um, so we kind of just both realized like probably, this is probably, you know, it is, it is what it is. It's like um, as it relates to me coaching Sandy and Katie, I was, I tried my best and I actually had a few, a handful of people compliment my ability to take any emotion regarding like Katie and Sandy and all that stuff and try to set it aside and coach each one as an individual. And all I did, you know, from a coaching perspective was say, I have like the pole vault is an emotional event, but the physics of it are not emotional, mm. right? Like getting somebody's step is not an emotional thing to do and telling people to move their standards or to go up poles when it's required is not like an emotional decision. And so all I would do is watch their jump. I would look at like the little, you know, benchmarks of what needs to happen in any given jump, try to give them the correction and then see what they could do with it. And that's always how I've looked at coaching. When I was coaching, um, I don't get very nervous. And I may have said this on the previous podcast, but I don't get very nervous when I coach. I mean, I certainly have emotion and I'm certainly like, don't want the athletes to not succeed. Yeah. But I realized when I was an athlete, like I, if I had a bad meet, it was always my fault. Like I never once thought about blaming a coach of mine. It's like, I'm out here. Like I know what my mid should be. I know what my turnover should be in the last couple of steps. I know when I blow through a pole or if I should be going up poles. Like I have somebody in the stands who's somebody who can give me feedback, but I'm the ultimate decision maker. And the, at no point in my career did I ever think that my coach was at fault for anything. And so I take that mindset and I apply it, even if the girls don't agree, even if like Katie and Sandy don't agree that that's the case. Like that's the, that's the world that I coach from. So I'm like, I'm going to give you inputs. Let's see what you can do with these inputs. If I give you the wrong input, shit, that sucks. You know what I mean? Like that's my fault, but I feel confident in my abilities to give like pretty sound input. And anytime I get into a situation where I have two choices to make, I always, I almost always give it to the athlete because the athletes mind give them is, the choice. I give them the choice. I said between the two things. Okay. Correct. And I'll spell out both choices. You can right. either go up, move your step back 6 inches, move your standards up 10 centimeters, or you can stay on this pole, be a little bit tighter and really be patient through the top of the jump. You decide what's best. Because Sandy's the type of athlete who always wants to go up, which I vibe with. I'm like that's do it. Like I want you to go up. Katie would rather say well, Katie likes to go up in competitions, but there are times where Katie's more confident on a pole that she's already jumped on than a new pole that, you know, she's never been on before. Right. And so like I'm reading their body language, I'm figuring out what's wanted, and then I give them the choice because they know that they, I want them to own their decisions. One, because I don't want to own it for them and then be wrong. Mm-hmm. Not because it's wrong, but because if they aren't bought into it, then it is wrong. You know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. So yeah, because that's the thing is that it doesn't really, if the athlete doesn't buy into it, 
there's been a number of times, not even with just Katie and Sandy, but other athletes where the clear option is to go up holes. Like it's absolutely the clear option. <laughs> right. And then I'll say, go up holes. It's time. And then you see them get worried. And then you have a run through and then you have a bad plant crashing on the bar. And then finally they put one jump together. And it's like, right. that was the right option, but your brain couldn't handle the right choice. So with an athlete who's not at the level of like world's best, I will normally tell them the right option because they need repetitions to challenge themselves and understand what right means. Right. When I'm, when I'm dealing with like a Katie or a Sandy and they're going for a medal at a championship, the only thing that matters is what their brain is going to do with the information given to them and if it's going to be successful or not. And so at that point, if somebody wants to go up holes and I give them an A and B option, they're, they're going to pick the right one. And then they're going to know that it's right because they wanted it. And if they don't want to go up holes, then they're going to auto adjust maybe take just, you know, a few percentage off the takeoff, be a little bit, you know, calmer through the jump or whatever, and maybe make it work as well. And so, um, there, you know, and, and not always, you know, you can't always do that. Like actually at the Olympics, Katie had a problem in 2021 on the old pacer. Was she on? No, she, I guess she was on the Essex at then. Um, she had a problem where sometimes she would peel away from the pole and think it was a blow through because she feels herself oh, hitting the bar on the way right, up, but it was because right. she didn't stay tight. So there was a point at the Olympics where she was like, it's time to go up. And I go, you peeled away. You, can, you, you can't go up yet. Like it's not time. And she stayed on the pole. And I think that's what she made 90 on to win. Wow. And it was a deal where her mind wanted to go up. But I was like, no, I got to really in. That's not the right move right now. But most of the time, if Katie's telling me she wants to move up, I'm like, heck yeah. Like, let's go up. You know what I mean? And so anyway, um, that was a long ex explanation of coaching the two of them. It's like, I give them the, like the physics of it, you know, where's your step, where's your energy, where's, you know, you're doing the right things positionally. And I just give them the information and then it's up to them to put it together. Yeah. And so what I look at was a really big success coaching success from, from my perspective, working with Sandy is there's two meets, there's two meets that she desperately wants to win gold at, Oh, you know, a major as in world outdoor or Olympics, and then the world athletic final or the, or the diamond league final. And in both of those meets, she was in a position jumping for the gold. She had, you know, she was sitting in either silver or was in gold and then somebody overtook her. But in both of those meets, she had the opportunity to win gold. Mm -hmm. And so from my perspective, it wasn't a failure of like training or it wasn't a failure of anything like that. It was like, you have the opportunity to do the two things that you really want to accomplish. And I'm, I'm really happy that we were able to put her in a position to be able to accomplish those things. Now she right. didn't accomplish those things. And I think that led her to the decision that we, you know, sat down and talked about where she couldn't really buy in and all, you know, things needed to change from that perspective. Right. And, and we did have conversations, you know, I did have conversations about like the emotional side of it saying, this is the trend. We've turned the trend. You're healthy. You're moving well. She actually planted the biggest pole of her life um, last season, equal to the biggest pole in her life. And she, her, her body weight is about the same as she's been. And so in her mind, she's like, I got to be, you know, bigger. I got to be faster. I got to be, you know, she didn't say bigger. I got to be faster and stronger. And I'm like, but no, like the physics equation of it all says you were really fast because you planted the biggest pole you've ever planted. And sure there, you can tweak, you know, a couple of technical things and maybe make energy flow a little bit better through the takeoff, but you can't really cheat that she was, she was moving well because she yeah, was planting. Yeah. If it's rolling really through the pit, then it's rolling. Then yeah, then you're moving fast. And so so the emotion of what she was trying to do was kind of overriding the logic of what I was seeing. And then I was realizing that my ability to control some of her decisions and stuff like that was was now becoming less effective because of what she wanted to do and what she thought she needed and stuff. So anyway, we had that conversation and 
it became clear at a certain point that it was probably like I told her, I said, look, I said, I, I really don't want to be in a situation where I don't give you the things that you think you need. And then you have a bad experience with me as your coach. Like right. she's number one in the world. She had an opportunity to do, do some things that she's really wanted to do. I looked at that as a really big success. I'm not going to be that guy who ends up holding her back if she thinks there's other areas that need to be explored. And I didn't help her explore those. And so it was like, you got to explore them. You know, like if this is where your heart's at and you think that you need to go do these things um, and don't understand what we've done together and how we progress in a particular way, um, then yeah, the world's your oyster, you know, go find, go find that training environment or coach or, you know, all the things that it was. And again, everything was cordial and we both understood what was going on and what the decision was. And, and uh, so now I'll, uh, we'll see her back on the runway with, you know, Katie versus Sandy sort of thing, I guess. Which is fine. Didn't she yeah. buy a house though? She did. Yep. She bought a house and um, uh, her husband. Gonna, has a, were they planning to kind of be in this area regardless? Or? You got to get her back on the podcast to figure out, <laughs> figure out Sandy's things. I don't know anything. I don't know where she's going to, you know, what she's doing, where she's going, who she's training with. I mean, I do know that she's doing a little bit of a, with the local group in the area, but um yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what her plans are. And, uh, I, all I know is that there was a, there was a period of time where I was, you know, I was, I was having, I'm not going to say that I wasn't having issues with the, the, the entire situation thinking like from my perspective that things went really, really well. And it was a really successful season back to number one in the world and injury free. And then, um, kind of being faced with a decision where she thought that a lot of things needed to change and be different. I was like, yeah, oh, I was struggling with it mentally and, um, trying to figure out how to best go about it. And then, um, and then I, I kind of had like a gut feeling of what was kind of going on. And then I kind of, I never, I mean, as, as best I can, I always listen to my gut because I think that's just the Holy Spirit knocking on the door saying, hey, this is how things need to move forward. Yeah. And so I moved forward in that direction and have felt really at, at peace with everything and, and um, kind of know that it was the right thing. And it's been, it's funny because the church that we go to, they keep, we keep talking about the year of Jubilee, which starts in 2023 and the year of Jubilee is like, it's kind of a restful year. It's like giving up excess things and trying to get back to a little bit more of the non-American way of life, you know, having rest and peace and relaxation and, you know, time and all of that stuff. And having three athletes who are really on board, just like working hard and cranking um, the vibe in the jump sessions has been phenomenal. Like they feed yeah. off of one another. We've had a bunch of jump sessions now with just the three of them where it's like, nobody's left having a bad session. And that's I'm like, a good feeling. yeah, and that's not normal. You know what I mean? And you can tell, like, I'm pretty, I'm just like a sensitive person to like, you know, we can get off on tangents of what energy is and communal consciousness and all that stuff. But basically like the energy in the facility is upbeat and it's like, good. It's like, we're all doing the same thing. We're all trying to do it together. People are like bought in, they're focusing, they're working hard. You know, I've had times in the past where I've taught like a certain model and then the year, the next like two years later, it's just a continuation of the same thought process. And an athlete will be like, wow, this is a great cue. I wish I knew about this earlier. And I'm like, we talked about this day once. What do you, <laughs> right. what do you mean? <laughs> you know, what do you mean about, I wish you knew this earlier. And, um, and so, uh, uh, yeah. So, so anyway, it's, it's nice. The group that I have is like really fun. I feel way less stress just even on the building being there and, and they also like, they also all understand the school and the schooling. And it's, it's fun now because there are certain things that I can help them with, you know, this hurts, that hurts. Let's, you know, can you take a look at this? Yeah, and, and that's that's start, awesome. That's a fun piece to be able to do and to be able to, 
you know, it, what's really what's really gratifying. And I'm, again, I'm I'm still a year out of school. I'm not a practicing chiropractor or anything like that. But if I have right. an athlete on the table and you know understand kind of what's going on and kind of like help them out, they get off the table. They're like, yeah, it's gone. You know, I'm like, that's amazing. Okay, I guess that's why I'm here. You know, like uh, we can. Well, that's like, I mean, like a superpower. Like that's like a super coach. Like, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like somebody who understands, you know that the health and and longevity side of an athlete and then Mm -hmm. also how to get them to perform like you're literally like making yourself into like a super coach and if you find the right you know situation after you are a practicing you know chiropractor that could be pretty i mean i i gotta think that people are gonna be signing up real quick to (laughs) want to train with you if they, they probably already are right now but um, yeah, it is disappointing. I just, I feel like the whole thing with Sandy, like it wasn't, there wasn't enough time for it to, uh, mature, yeah. you know, like it, it just is like, oh man, like, uh, you know, maybe a year or two more and it probably would have matured into a pretty nice thing. You know, I, I guess I would be wondering when you and Katie first met, how was it an immediate, like, boom, I'm a lot better. Or was it like a three, four year process? Year two is where things really started to take off. Yeah. Year two is where things really started to take off because the athlete goes into the preseason understanding, understanding what's going on, understanding the technical model, all of the early drills and cueing now are already the, the path is there. And now they get to refine that path and understand it better. Um, and then they've already like the first year sometimes is like for Katie, when I first got there, Katie was with a Russian coach. They were very light in the weight room, trying to keep the body weight light. We had given her a lot of muscle. We had given her like good nutrition for the year. And so she comes in with a whole different base and set of tools to even work through preseason on. Right. Right. And, um, you know, so I agree with you a hundred percent. It is a bit disappointing because, yeah, year one is like, let's just try to erase some of the stuff in the past that hasn't been working well. Mm-hmm. And then let's build on it in year two. But I think, you know, as as time goes on and people have goals that they still want to achieve, the pressure of time starts pushing against them and that elevates an emotional response. And then they can't see logic and reason in the same fashion that somebody who's less emotionally involved can see it. And that's yeah. one of the interesting things about being a coach is I don't, I get to see, I get to see time in a very different fashion. Like I look at, I look at like January to June as like this massive time block. Six months is so much time to get people in different shape and different technical cues and indoor without indoor worlds this year means that we don't have to focus on indoor. It's just a couple little meets here or there. Go make a little bit of money. Like let's keep working. Let's keep refining. We have so much time. Well, an athlete in November, if they're not running as fast as they want to be running, is like, this isn't working. This isn't working. Yeah. I need yeah. to do something different. And right. I'm like, and so you you get to see that, you get to explain it. The athletes who understand and have a little bit more faith in the program will kind of understand like what's going on. You know, the other ones will feel like they're losing time and need to be somewhere else and all that stuff. So I agree. Yeah, it, it is what it is. But I but I I also think that um I just know that it was like the right 
that it all worked out the way that it kind of needed to. And that sounds like yeah. cheesy, right? It's like, think, you know, it sounds like this, happen you know, for a, a, Hallmark, a Hallmark card, right? <laughs> um, things happen for a reason. <laughs> things happen for a reason. But what I will say is that, you know, Katie had, Katie had a rough year at, uh, last year. Yeah. Yes, she's the world champ. She did it in an amazing fashion from a short approach. Like the things that you're just like, gosh, this girl's talented. But it was yeah. not an easy year. And it was the hardest year that I've ever had working with Katie because I felt like I had a lot less um, influence on her because her mind was a little bit somewhere else. And there was a lot of things. There was the slump coming off of the Olympics. Um, you know, that depressive kind of like, I just achieved the, my dream and my, the goal of like my entire life. Um, you know, and, and there was all of that. Plus there was, um, the wedding was, a, is, is, and was a big thing that Kate took a lot of Katie's attention. Um, and then you have like essentially world's number one training in the group, you know, who's now fire is lit even more because Katie's now in this like depressive post-Olympic slump and Sandy's fired up trying to do more. And it's interesting because I've noticed, well, two things that happened. One, Katie is, Katie has been um, on a different diet. She's, she found out she was uh, actually celiac, not just like gluten intolerant, but had a, you know, had oh, a celiac wow. diagnosis. So Katie's now, you know, she's gluten free now and she's changed all of her eating habits. Um, but then also like kind of, I feel like there's been a difference in Katie since uh, Sandy has, has not been training with the group. And I feel like Katie is much more now like she was in like 2021 getting ready for Tokyo. Mm. So I'm kind of wondering if there was a little bit of a deal where Sandy's presence being there was just keeping a little bit more anxiety kind of within Katie's mind at practice sessions, not from any standpoint of just like wanting to be on a little bit more or wanting to be a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that. And a relaxed Katie is a good vaulting Katie. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I've seen that change in her as well. And so it's, you know, really possible that, um, you know, we tried to do what we could with both of them in house and maybe this will be a better thing where they both get to do their thing to compete against, you know, each other, um, you know, outside in, in a, in a different way. So yeah, we'll see. I mean, time will tell how the decision works for everybody involved and all that stuff. It, it'll be kind of fun to, to watch from my perspective to see, yeah. you know, how the next little bit goes. Be very interesting. Yeah. I Mick Katie had like so much media attention after the Olympics too. It was like every time I pulled up Instagram, she was like doing something at a Browns game oh, or like or Cleveland, doing a commercial yeah. or like and I was like whole like so many podcasts and interviews. And I was like, yep. dude, it's going. I told I was talking with Luke about it. I was like, it's gonna be very interesting to see how she reacts to mm-hmm. all of this attention. Cause it was a lot of attention, man. Like the yeah. city just absolutely really got behind her. loved the fact that she won that gold medal and yep. for her to come back and do that that was actually one of my questions on here was if it was a surprise was was katie's gold at the world's a surprise or did you maybe see it coming in the weeks prior to that <laughs> no it was it was a surprise it was a surprise <laughs> like you know I, I obviously i would never count katie out but her prep, like we had planned on her jumping from full. Here's the thing that was hard for me as a coach last year. I told Katie, I said, look, after she won the Olympics, I said, you need to take the ride you're about to go on. Like you deserve it. Number one, number two, sport is an amazing thing and we're all going for it. But this is, there's a business component to this as well. You will never be more valuable than you are like, you know, after this gold. I mean, 
I can't say never, you know, world record, right. maybe another goal. No, like, I understand. But um, this is you're you're very valuable right now. And from a business side of things, you need to, you know, take that ride as well. And I said, you're going to have an emotional like exhaustion uh, after doing all this stuff. And so she was a bit more, I would like just use the word vulnerable overall post games. And I realized that I couldn't like be hard on her and I couldn't push her. And I've always pushed yeah. Katie. And I, I mean, she needs that. Katie has this funny saying. I actually think it's, I think it's hilarious. Katie says, I'm not an overachiever. I'm just an achiever. <laughs> as in, that is, that yeah, is as in like, saying. if, if she, if I don't say this is what you have today, she's going to be scrolling through TikTok with her feet up on the couch. But if I say <laughs> this is what you have today, she's all in, she's eating at the right time. She's figuring out how to best prep for whatever session it is. And she shows up on time and she gets her work done. And Isn't so, that what you want as a coach, though? It's well, just it, it's, right up to, right up to, minimum effective dose. That's, that's I love, I love the the minimum effective dose type. Yeah, stuff, you yeah. Know? As long as the, as long as when you're getting the dose in, it's all out, and you're working as hard as you can, then yes, it's perfect. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons she's probably been injury free, and you know she doesn't have this like neuroses of I got to do more on days that she should be resting. So yeah. She does get, she's great at getting therapy. So she's getting good massage. She's getting good care. And um, so anyway, she, I, but, but I realized that I couldn't push her in Eugene world champs year, like the run up. I couldn't push her. I couldn't, I couldn't push her in ways that I could, and I couldn't apply pressure in ways that I had applied previously. And um, as a result, I felt like I had very little control over what was going on. And go, leading into World Champ, she was having a little bit of ankle issues. I, I remember coming back from, I remember going to a meet with, an, with another one of my athletes. Like my, my life is just like, I'll go to school and then I'll leave school and drive five hours to stay the night to coach a meet to then race back to try to give somebody a little bit of therapy or something like that. To then Sunday, you know, go to church, come back, study as much as I can to start on Monday. And like, it's been like this for a long time. And so anyway, is, is that why we had a hard time scheduling the podcast? That's what well, I was in finals week. I was in finals week. Yeah. And this, this quarter I had nine, nine written finals and then three in-person lab finals. So like 12 finals this quarter. Right. And, um, anyways. no, I know it was, I, I, I just was, it's just so funny. Cause I was like, Hey, Brad, in the middle of all this, can you give me three hours of your time here? <laughs> yeah. Well, now I do have the three. Well, I, I don't, but I, but I for a limited to. time, a limited time offer. You've got the the time. So yeah. anyway, sorry to interrupt. No, no. So, so, uh, so anyway, I, ha I remember trying to race back because like Katie's calf was bugging her and need a little bit of therapy. And then Katie was like, oh, I think I'm going to go out with the girls. And it like really like she probably needed just the to clear the air, you know, she just needed not the pressure, but like in my head, performance driven, it's like, no, your, your calf needs therapy. So anyway, she didn't get therapy that night. She shows up at like Monday's practice session and has to call it short because her calves hurting her. And I was just like, yeah. it was, it was a struggle for me as a coach, like having patience to see her making decisions that she thought she needed to make, which I'm not going to say were right or wrong, but like it wasn't performance driven. And that sometimes as a coach is, you know, really hard to see. So anyway, we had we didn't have time to get back to full approach. So we knew that she could get through prelims from six lefts, and that was the plan. I think she got off the ground maybe like one time, like with a tap going in, you know, from eight and had no reps from eight, wasn't confident from eight. And it was the night after the prelim or the day, it was either the night of the prelim or the night after we had dinner, and she was like, What step are we gonna go from at the final? And like, I know her well enough to know that eight was the wrong choice. 
So I looked at her and I was like, we got to go from six. She's like, good. And I mean, you know, I yeah. knew that she knew that that was the right decision. And, um, and then she just, <laughs> she just rocked it. I mean, you know, it was just unreal. And it was cool because, you know, Sandy had put in a ton of work and she was undefeated and she was going really well. Um, but Katie's freaky competitor, man. And she just kept yeah. pressure. She applied pressure and then a crack came and then Katie just put her foot through the, you know, through the gas pedal and cleared that and completely knocked the wind out of, you know, Sandy. Right. And to the point where, I mean, Sandy and I had conversations about it because Sandy's, in my opinion, Sandy's third attempt for gold was a completely like wasted jump because mm-hmm. she had, she had been, I mean, honestly, she had just been defeated. Like she got, she right. got Katie defeated her before the competition was done. And, um, you know, that was a little disheartening because I was like, gosh, Sandy's really kicked butt. She's trained really hard and all that stuff. But, um, but it, it was what it was. And so it was a surprise because to jump, you know, as high as Katie did from short is super impressive. But then to be able to put that kind of mark together with all of the stuff leading up to the meet was also super impressive. And I wasn't, I, I absolutely thought she could medal, but, but I thought it would be, you know, to beat Nina and to beat Sandy and, you know, to get, to get to where she did was just like, gosh, what can we do next year? If this girl can put all of it together from full approach, because the, the thing is that you'd have to ask Katie this. I think she was on she was on bigger poles from six than she jumped the 90 that she won the Olympics on. Really? Yes. Wow. And for all the That's coaches wild. and athletes out there, it's like when you go from six to full approach, you're going to go up several poles and you're going to go up and grip. Mm-hmm. So if she's on bigger poles from six and we get her to eight this year and she's capping, you know, one of the 445s, three poles bigger, well, she's going to be five plus in the air. It's just inevitable, right? Right. So, so then it's like, well, what can she do now? And that's going to be pretty darn exciting to see how it how it goes. Absolutely. I don't want to put you on the spot, but, uh, what do you know? What polls she was on? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I know the biggest poll I think she's ever cleared a bar on that 95 in Eugene for at trials, I think was a four forty five sixteen four. Honestly, okay. I think she might've been on like the eighteen zero or something like that. The entire, uh, Olympics. She never really even went up sticks at the games. Right. And then, um, and I think she was maybe in the low 17, like 445, low 17 points for that six, six left approach at the world's or gotcha. yeah, six What's left it, what was her, world's. her grip. You remember roughly what her grip I was? Don't, I don't remember grip. Yeah. I don't really, yeah. it's funny. Cause like, I remember you asked that question to Mondo about where he was gripping up that 21 jump on that 11, seven. And you could tell he was like, nah, it was probably a couple of inches down from, I'm like very similar. I'm yeah. like, grab the pole. <laughs> we, we know where we're going to hold on this pole. And then we're going to go up probably two fingers every time we go up or maybe, you know, we yeah. won't go up or whatever, but I, the, the grip to me is a, it's a floating, floating deal, you know, plus right. or minus a couple of fingers, depending on the day, the plant box, the run, all that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. There are a couple things that we still haven't covered that I wanted to, um, one of those things is, man, what do I do first? Um, first of all, really quick, what workouts do you attend? Uh, I try to be as much as I can, everything at the track. So all sprints, all jumps, all of that. And then, um, so that would be like, yeah, four days a week, uh, Monday, Wednesday, usually right now, like in preseason, we'll go Monday, Friday, jump sessions, Wednesday, sprint, plyo day, Saturday, longer runs, like longer sprints. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be there for all of those, uh, almost always. And, um, and then weight room, 
don't really get a chance to make much of their weight room anymore. Um, that's something that I wish I could, because I do think that, uh, there are people who don't know how to lift and not only from a technique standpoint, but what it means to push. And I may have, I may have said this last podcast, when I first got to WSU, I asked one of my athletes how often they failed in their lifting. And he said, what do you mean? I said, how often are you not able to complete what's on, you know, the sheet of paper for the set of reps? He goes, never. I was like, never. He goes, yeah. I go, when's the last time you guys maxed? And they were like September or something or November. And I was like, okay. And do you ever remax throughout the season? And I don't love the whole like max and remax. That's not how I do it. But I knew that's how the college coaches do it. And I said, he goes, we never remax. And I said, are you working off percentages? And he said, yes. I said, so you're taking, especially for, let's say, a high school kid who's never lifted. You're maxing them in the weight room in like September, October and preseason. You're building an entire year's worth of training based on percentages of a kid who's weak, who didn't train in the summer coming in, then you never remax them and never adjust those percentages. He's like under training the entire year in the weight room. So I had this deal where I talked to the strength coach and he was like opposed to my idea. And he said, you're going to get athletes injured. I go, dude, I lived at the Olympic training center and watched all the Olympians lift forever. This is how it works. Like you don't like, I'm sorry, but you don't understand how to train people in the weight room. Right. And, um, he was offended and he made me write a letter to the head strength coach saying that if any of his athletes, you know, got injured that, you know, it would have been my fault and all this kind of stuff. Then my athletes started kicking ass in the weight room, all of their numbers went up. And then people were like looking, going, Oh, I guess I can lift more. You know, like we created a weight room culture, a weight room etiquette that was appropriate for college athletics. And it just wasn't there before. And, um, and so anyway, I do have the, I think the ability to influence how people lift and how people get their strength numbers and what effort level I expect my athletes to be lifting at. Right. Because I think sometimes in track and field, people are like, I'm going to be, you know, quick and fast and throw a band here and do these little, like, I'm just like, dude, how about like create hormones by like pushing as hard as you can and tearing down tissue and making sure your max is going up and things like that. Right. And so, so when I was, um, when I was at WSU and I had more time, I was at a lot more lifts of like Katie and Kristen at the time. And, um, now I just have to rely on, I hope these people are cranking. Yeah. Yeah. So for your, you and I have discussed before privately about, um, your cycles. So you're, you're on four week cycles then three, three, and then it transitions to the rest week most of the time. And then it transitions to a rest week. Okay. Yeah. And rest week, we still lift, but we just, we take out most of the auxiliaries and we'll do the Olympic plus like the major lift of the session. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so whenever you are constructing these four week cycles, is it mainly like, uh, you know, higher volume at the front end of the cycle, and then it transitions to a lower volume, higher intensity at the end. Yep. And then you just rinse and repeat or. Yeah, sort of. So like what I do is I'll start, I'll start there. Like I try to have what I consider to be logic and reason behind the progression of everything. So, um, when I first start the athletes, we'll do like general strength, bodybuilding stuff. We won't load the spine. We won't do super heavy stuff. Uh, and then as we get a little bit further on what I start them at, what I start them out with hex bar is usually the first lift, like lift cycle of the year. And it'll be five seconds up, five seconds down, which is mm. awful. Like yeah, it that's sucks. Terrible. Right. And there are people in my training, well, who aren't in my training group anymore. Are like, you know, you don't train me the way I need to be trained. It's like, no, you don't like the pain of that. 
<laughs> that sucks. You know what I mean? That yeah, sucks. It's hard. Like I've like I've watched athletes like almost cry doing it because they're just like they don't want to feel this anymore. And so anyway, it's five seconds up. So you're moving super slow. You get to the top, you go five seconds down, and you'll have a set of like eight. And then like mm. you have four by eight of that. And it's just terrible, right? Right. But you're holding pot you're because you're going so slow, you're at a lighter weight. So you're working grip strength when you're doing it but then you're locking in positions and then you're getting core stability and you're not loading the spine in a way that a squat would. So we're building core strength at a lighter weight. And then after that cycle, we'll transition to a, a heavier, um, a heavier hex bar at normal speeds, but the body's already conditioned to handle the position. You start to have the core stability and all that stuff. And then from a, from the hex bar, we'll transition to a heavy back, like a, not a heavy back squat, but a, we'll start with a back squat. And normally, like right now, we're we're doing eights, so that's a lot, like in terms of reps. That's a lot, yeah. So because you're doing eight, your weight's less, so the joints are getting hit as hard, and you're giving the chance for the spine to be able to handle a compressive load and get all the you know intrinsic muscles like fired up and ready to handle heavier loads. And then over the next block, we'll drop down from like eights to fives and fives to threes. And in squats, I don't normally drop down below threes because I don't want to put like a like a heavy axial load on the spine of like a one rep max. Cause I'm like, why, you know what I mean? We can still get good work with threes. Yeah. I, I, what, so I don't know. I go back and forth with that. Like if there's, I, I like the idea of like moving a weight for three or whatever, like a heavier weight for three. It's like, Oh man. Yeah. I could, you know, let's say, you know, if I moved 340 on a squat for three, then it'd be like, I could, you know, do 375 or whatever. But mm -hmm. do you think that there's value in just like, there's thinking you can move it, but then when you actually move it, when you actually move that new max, mm -hmm. don't you think there's a, some confidence gained there and, and, some like reward that could be comparable to the risk. I, yeah, I mean, look, I personally wouldn't have a problem trying to drop on there and do a heavy lift. Um, and I know, I, I mean, I know exactly the question you're asking, but I, what I would say is that you can get the same response by threes. So like you, if you journal, your lifting, you're going to know when you're doing a three rep max PR, just like, you know, when you're doing a one rep max PR. Oh, but it'll be so, at a lower weight. So there's a little bit less. Yeah. So if you're doing 315 for three in, you know, 2021 and then in 2022, you hit 340 for three, like yeah, that, makes that sense. should be the same sort of response. Right. Now our like, you know, testosterone male mind is saying, but I want to know what I can do for <laughs> one. You know what right. I mean? Right. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that because there is, there is something to that for sure. Um, but I think, yeah, I, and I, I, you know, I actually do think sometimes I get to doubles, but I, I just try to a double is different than a single, right? Cause a single is just that all out push where a double, you know, you have to have a little bit in reserve. So you, I feel like you're just a little bit more like safe in, in how you're, how you're doing it. Right. But then anyway, after, so, at, and then after a lot of times I'll go into back squat, then sometimes I'll throw in front squat for a cycle and then go back to back squat. Oh, interesting. front squat. Yeah. The front squat will load like those paraspinals and keep the, like, it just wants to dump you forward front squats, terrible. Um, uh, it hurts. And sometimes I'll front squat actually sometimes this year I didn't, but sometimes I front squat before back squat to prep the back squat muscles because it's a heavier load. Right. Um, but so anyway, like 
that's kind of how I progress. It's like, there's, uh, I'm progressing in a certain way so the body can handle the loads. And I'm not just like throwing something really heavy on somebody. Or if I do like specifically going from hex bar, then to back squat, I got to make sure the back squat numbers are high enough to where they can't put too much weight on and kind of get, you know, get hurt. Cause mm-hmm. it's like eight sucks. So you get, you know, you're not going that heavy if you're doing eight reps of it sort of thing. And um, yeah. So I don't know what the original question was, but there you go. Yeah. So you're going from a higher volume in the front end of your, your four week cycle, and then you're mm-hmm. moving into a, a lower volume and then you're doing four week cycles for, so that's like, are you having like a, a macro cycle of those four week cycles where, you know, you were talking about how, uh, you move through, you know, eights and then fours and then threes or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So, and is there a point where those exercise, do you have a core group of exercises that you just kind of maintain throughout the entirety of the season? Or is there a time where new exercises are added or exercises are removed and things like that? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say cycling. I mean, I just try to cycle like each block has a focus. So if we're doing like a heavy bench one block, then the next block's probably going to be like a heavier incline and we'll like, you know, maybe do a dumbbell bench or something. Um, I do have core exercises because I think that there's only so many exercises that give you the hormonal response you're looking for the most effectively. So I keep like heavy benches in when I'm trying to keep the legs fresh, but push testosterone in, let's say the outdoor season going into like a USA's, for example. Um, but I still always try to hit something in the lower body, even if it's like low volume, high intensity to just make sure the body can still, you know, output that heavy, heavy load. Um, one of the things that I, as I get a little bit older and then I realize that my like athletes are getting a little bit older, I sometimes think a little bit more about, um, just the entire chain and opening the chain. So this year I've done a little bit more of like single leg squats with your foot elevated on a high box behind you so that when you're getting to 90 degrees, that like so as hip flexor and anterior quad is getting really opened up. Um, and then I'll do things like sumo squats, which is like feet pointed outward, like toes pointed, you know, to your, to like in the line of your shoulders almost. So you're getting a lot of adductor stretch, but in that you're like opening up the hip complex a little bit. Um, and, and you're just getting like a fascial, like a, like a eccentric fascial load, you know, so that fascia is just like opening up and you're trying to keep the hips open, um, and little things like that. So most of the time my auxiliary lifting will change a little bit, but the fundamental base lift of like a heavy Olympic plus like a heavy press or a heavy pull is, is a variation of that stays throughout most of the season. Right. Yep. Um, all right. And then after I did the, uh, Burgess podcast. I got a text from you. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> oh, budge. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know what this question is. I told you. We, we, yeah, we talk about it. But yeah. Pose the question so the audience knows. So, you know, there's just me and Paul Burgess had talked about uh, just kind of shorter, higher intensity sprints, you know, almost throughout the entirety of the season. And and in my opinion, I don't understand personally how, like, if I were to do the classic one that I always heard of and, and did back in the day was 300s. It's like, okay, so I'm going to do 300s in October and November. Um, and then that's going, and and the justification behind that has, has always been, well, we're going to start, you know, with the higher volume, you know, sprints, and then we're going to work our way, uh, 
to May where we're going to be really fast and poppy. And, and people would always say, well, you know, you're in good shape because you did those three hundreds in the fall. And it's like those three hundreds, the conditioning from those three hundreds was gone two weeks after you stopped doing the three hundreds. Okay. Mm. So like that conditioning from the three hundreds is not there anymore. Okay. Like in May, those things are long, long gone, you know, and I personally, I understand there are, there's always a case, you know, for everything. It's, I, I'm not, I'm not like a hard, fast rule guy, but like, let's say that a kid comes in and they are very overweight. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, whoa, you're out of condition. You got, mm-hmm. you let it go too much this off season. Mm-hmm. Okay. Get some endurance sprints in there and probably going to fall off, you know, relatively quick. We're going to be able to get you into some pretty good condition with that. But for somebody who comes in like five to 10 pounds, uh, of where they were at last season and, and they're pretty fit and they didn't lose a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, slowly working back into, you know, faster, higher intensity sprints for me, I just feel like I'll be spending more time working on, like I was saying earlier, signaling the body. Yeah. I I want you to move fast. Body, listen to me. I want you to move fast. So we're going to move fast. I don't want to signal to you about, you know, running 300s. And then last thing, and I'll let you talk, mm-hmm. uh, is running a 300. And then I'll even go down to even, even a 100 or let's say 150. It's a different stride. It's a different stride than running down the runway. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like running extremely fast for 40 meters is way different than running a 300. So you're like almost training a different stride cadence. Yeah. Well, I know that um, if it'd be interesting, you know, to have a third, have Mondo on the podcast, you said 150s is probably, you know, biggest thing. And, and see 100%. his side of it. So the answer to that question, because I texted you and I said, I do have an answer. And I, the answer that I have has like three components to it. The first component to it is that running 30s and 40s is pretty damn easy. Mm. Okay. And that's not a problem. I use 30s all the time. It's just easy, right? Mm. There's a grit component to doing tough workouts that I think has a physiolo- like a mental effect that the athlete can carry into the preseason mm. or into the season. Like, how hard did you work? Did you do a bunch of easy workouts that were explosive? Or did you like actually create grit and really get into some things that you know other people would bow out on? Like, I have this workout that's uh, 90 second. There's five 90 second runs with exercises in between. There's literally like no rest. I'll give them 10 seconds. So they'll run, they'll do ankling for 30 meters, drop down, do 10 push-ups. Ankling for 30 meters, drop down to 10 push-ups, like run 90 seconds. The goal is always over 400 meters. As soon as you get done, you like put your hands on your hips. I blow a whistle and you're doing sit-ups and you're doing like uh, donkey kicks, which is like, this handstand jumping up, kicking your legs out and kind of popping off the ground. Mm -hmm. You get done with 10 sit-ups, 10 of those, 10 sit-ups, 10 donkey kicks, 
I start 10 seconds on the clock. You get to breathe for 10 seconds. You hit another 90 seconds. You do that five times. Um, you watch people just, they can't do it. They're, you know, sometimes they're puking. It's like, it sucks and they hate it. They hate it. And I'm like, this is like, we're like, you want to be a professional pole vaulter? Like we have to put you through some stuff that makes you feel like you are creating work ethic and grit. And you know, that you put together a preseason that people would struggle to, to, to stay with you. Mm-hmm. So there's, so there's a mental component for, for one thing. Right. The second Agreed. thing. Agreed. I, yeah. I agree with that. I think that's very valuable. Yeah. And I, and one of the reasons that I put it back in is because when I started working with like Dan Paff, we didn't really do anything long. We didn't really do anything hard. We do like 90 meter up backs. And it's like, you run 90 meters, you decel, you come back and you come back. Or like maybe we did one fifties every once in a while. And six one fifties is terrible, right? Everybody's on the ground after number six, if you're cranking hard and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. it's like, what happened like to the just shit, you know, just like you're in the middle of it. You hate it. You want to puke. You feel you're dizzy and you're just cranking. I was like, why, when we get to the highest level of our performance do we get rid of the stuff that like feels like foundational work and i was like i'm gonna throw it back in but so that's so that's one is from the Mm -hmm. mental side of it the second thing that i particularly like you were talking about signaling to the body and this like image immediately came to my head of uh of a race car like we could look as as we're sprinters like we're essentially race cars well, do you know what the race cars do when they first get on the track is they drive slow to warm up the tires. Mm-hmm. And I look at like not only what we're doing in a micro, you know, three-week block standpoint, but like the entire season. And I think they mirror one another. So as we get into the season, we got to warm up the tires. Mm-hmm. I don't want somebody sprinting 30 meters as hard as they can in the first week. I mean, they're right. not ready for it. Their joints, ligaments, tendons aren't ready. The muscle base isn't ready. They're a little bit heavy. They're going to be slow. Yeah, you can sprint them into shape. But there's, there's, um, we got to warm up the tires. And one of the things that I mean by warming up the tires, I look at it as warming up the tires, number one, but I look at it as an oil change. When we're doing the kind of preseason that we do, which has a lot of like, we'll do a workout where it's a 100, you do exercises, you do a 200, you do exercises, you do 100. And it's another one that just sucks. Um, we are, as anaerobic athletes, we barely ever breathe hard, right? Like if you're right. doing a 30 meter cell, you're not gasping for air when you get done with it. We start to get these like fascial restriction patterns because we don't open things up very much. So the intercostal muscles are between all of the ribs, right? If you're only doing small explosive stuff and never breathing heavily and your lungs are never expanding, your intercostals are going to be a little bit tight because the ribs are meant to expand. So we're doing all these exercises where you're taking huge breaths of air in. And not only is your breathing, but your diaphragm is moving up and down, which is moving all of your organs. And now your organs are moving around. And the organs have to move around because all of it's fascially connected. So now you're getting like increase of blood flow, oxygenated tissue through all of your like intercostals and your rib cage. You're using your lungs to flush out all of like the organs and moving all of like the viscera around, which is important. You're moving uh, areas that haven't moved for a long time. So you're clearing out metabolites and toxins and things like that. And you're getting blood to tissues. Like when these guys are done running, I mean, you were to put your hand on any part of their body, I mean, they're super hot, right? You're, you're getting blood to areas where if somebody runs a couple thirties, you're like, you're not that hot, you know, because it's all like anaerobic based stuff. So I look at it as kind of this oil change. We got to get the gunk out of the system from the preseason or sorry, not the preseason, but the off season of eating potato chips, going to the bars with your buddies and all that kind of stuff. And you're cycling through all of the fluids of the body. 
you're getting big lung expansion, taking in a bunch of oxygen, clearing out a bunch of CO2. Um, and then as a result, you're also creating a little bit of like a metabolic boost. So then you have higher fat burning throughout the rest of the day. Right. And, you know, we have extra fat coming in from the off season that we want to get rid of. And at the same time, then you're also prepping all of the joints of the body because none of these things are max, right? 90 mm -hmm. seconds is not a max effort. It right. just sucks because you're getting into the aerobic capacity stuff. So then we're starting to get the joints lubricated and we're starting to get the muscles activated, but not in like this ballistic explosive way. And then the, so that, so that's a big thing. I call it like changing the oil. We got to do our oil change for the season. And then the third component of it is setting up for work capacity. So the way that my, the way that I write my program, like I already said, is we're going to do, we're going to like four by eight. Right now their squat is going to be three by eight and two by five. So they're doing what's at 24 and 10. So 34 reps of squat, right? When I'm doing the heavy, long endurance stuff in the body, the body, we're creating like work capacity. And yes, it's not like ballistic explosive movement all, but it's basically like I'm giving them a little bit more endurance. And then as we start transitioning into our early weights, my athletes need the endurance to do like four sets of five, five second up, five second down hex bars. Like, cause if right. you're just doing a couple of thirties and you go into a, you know, that takes, I don't, I'd have to pull out, you know, the thing and figure out how, I mean, at, at your eight reps at 10 seconds. So you're at a minute, tw a minute 20 to just do that lift. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's a, a lot, long, a, long that's a lot of time under tension. Yeah. A lot of time under tension. And that's just, and then you got several sets of that. Plus you'll have an Olympic before that. Plus you have auxiliary after that. And so I'm looking at it from a work capacity standpoint is that I'm building work capacity on the beginning workouts of the year. So then they have a higher work capacity and less fatigue as they're getting into the weight room. And then that transitions to, you know, better recovery in between sets, the body's working the efficiencies and all the energetic systems to get the creatine phosphate back up to get the ATP back up. And then they have a better capacity for regenerating ATP and creatine phosphate in the latter part of the jump sessions. So it's like, so we do the oil change, we do the mental aspect of it, but then we're bumping work capacity so that our weight room and jump sessions can be a little bit longer and a little bit, you know, at a higher standard for a little bit longer over time. And, um, and then as you stated, as we're getting into like a USA's or a world champs, we're doing thirties cause we're just doing ballistic high, you know, high, high velocity movements. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't feel like by doing the early stuff, we lose the ability to do 30 meters come June. Like, I don't think that oh, yeah, I need yeah. like a bigger window of short runs to be like further along in short runs, you know, come June. So, right. so, so that's kind of like the three tiered answer of why I'm doing the longer stuff. And um, what I will say is that I don't look at the longer stuff as a speed base. Cause that was, I think one of the things that you and Paul were alluding to and like, why would you do longer stuff? not doing it for like sprint mechanics and I'm not doing it for like working speed. I'm doing it for the three reasons that, that I just for like a, a mental and then physiological response is what you're looking for. So yeah. Yep. And I think that's a clear distinction that we need to make is that you're not saying that these workouts are going to make you run a 40 faster. You know, it's, it's more of increasing your workload capacity 
flushing the system at a crucial time that the system needs to be flushed and then also just developing that grit to to be able to you know do that and and i i i don't think that any of those things are wrong and i i think that that's a the a really good way of looking at it um i would be curious if you have to change the oil again in a certain time in the seat. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, yeah. is there a, a time where you change the oil in the middle of the season? Well, we, we do rebase for the outdoor season. Yeah. Okay. But it's not nearly what I, when I rebase, I increase volume everywhere, but I generally don't pull out jump sessions. And so we don't end up like, we don't rebase in the same way. Mm-hmm. We don't rebase in the same way. We, we, we rebase. We just don't go through like the, those style of workouts in the same way, but all the, all of the, you know, all of the exercises after USA indoors or after, after world indoors is over, we'll go to a heavier, um, volume, volume block to get them ready for, you know, holding, holding on a peak from, you know, USA's until worlds or Olympics or whatever. Got you. Got you. Okay. Uh, last thing before, uh, we, we wrap up here. Uh, I got another text from you about toby stevenson's podcast about uh the whole tapping situation but then (laughs) but then i just heard you say that you tapped katie yeah yeah um so gosh i do remember i forget exactly the context of what i said about that oh yeah Look, I, I mean, Toby's great. I, he's a great coach. I have no, right. you know, I'm not trying to say anything bad about it, but he, he started talking about like the art of the tap and where and how, and I'm like, ah, you might be over, over complicating this whole tap thing. In my opinion, right. Yeah, you got to know where the athlete is going to take off at, and then you got to, you know, move quick enough and, you know, push them, whatever. Um, I think that look, ev- everybody this is human nature. So there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with this. No matter what people will, it's a self-protection mechanism to support things that you do. Right. So Sam Kendricks is really excited about, and he should be how efficient his jump is to think that the guy can jump 606 on a 490 pole to me is like, I didn't even think that was possible. That's an amazing achievement. Right. And he, there was a period of time where everybody was talking about efficiency. And I'm like, yeah, but beating Usain Bolt in the first 30 meters of a race and then losing to him, like, don't talk about your block start. Nobody cares, dude. You just, just lost. Yeah. And to think that, you know, he wouldn't trade it to be able to be like slightly less efficient, which he might even not be, but to hold 520 and then to go jump 620, like he'd make that trade. And this isn't a knock on him. He, He would make the trade because... We're trying to, we're not trying to be the most efficient pole vaulter in history. We're trying to jump the highest. Well, at least I was. And I think most people, you know, who, who are competitors think the world record would be amazing. But he's going to highlight how efficient he is because that's something that's really talented and something he does really, really well. Like, so there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's great that he's that efficient. He certainly was more efficient than me because I was on 520s and I only jumped 604. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of think that's where Toby's tap thing comes from. I did it. So I think it's like really great. And it's like, it was great for you. Like you needed it. Um, Mondo made a point that I think is Toby was saying that he got value out of it because he got to jump on his meat poles and practice. Right. Yeah. I found that interesting. Yeah. There's, but to- Toby also never left the ground unless he had a tap, but Toby was a great competitor. And I'm not trying to say he's mentally weak. There's a, Toby is absolutely not mentally weak when it comes to pole vaulting. In fact, the fact that he could collapse a lung and 
wreck in a meet and then come back and have a great season <laughs> is a testament to how mentally tough that dude is. Right, right. But the opposite side of the coin is every world record that Mondo's jumped has been a pole he's never jumped on. Like you don't have to be on it. You just have to be confident and you have to unwrap the pole. You got to tape it up and you got to go freaking kamikaze that dang bar. You know what I right, mean? Like, right, and right. So, so I had sent you that text because I do tap every once in a while, but people, it's very well known that people get addicted to taps. Mm. It's like very well known. Right. The fact that Toby had taps all of his whole life was either because he was addicted to them or because he thought there was value to them. It doesn't matter what my opinion about his taps were. It's just that I won't tap Katie all the time because I give Katie like a tap or two a session only when she goes to a new run or she goes up poles and she basically has to ask for it. Right. But I know that getting her off the ground one time on the new pole, letting her feel the pressures of that pole is important to her. Her confidence rises up. She realizes it's not that hard and then she'll go do it on her own. But I won't tap somebody consistently enough to have them get addicted to it and think that it's now a part of how they practice. I'm, right. I'm like, I'm against that personally. Yeah. And again, that's not to say that what Toby did is right or wrong. And that's, it's just, I was, I was chuckling because, you know, he started talking about like the art of the tap and I'm like, uh, I don't know if I can jump on board <laughs> yeah. with this whole thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he, he, uh, and he did say in that podcast that it's not like he's like for, he like t forces everybody to like, I have to tap you and this is the only thing that I do or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, it was just that, that just is one of those subjects. It's almost like the bottom arm subject in the pole vault, you know, like it's mm. just one of those subjects that gets your people get very polarized on it. And, uh, you know, should you tap or should you not tap? And it's just uh, an interesting thing. So I just kind of wanted, I just, you had mentioned about tapping Katie and I was like, oh man, I didn't, I just didn't expect that, uh, yeah. that, that you do that every once in a while. Look, I think it's a useful tool, but I think it becomes a crutch and it becomes addictive. And I've seen people who can't leave the ground without a tap. Like I, yeah. I'm thinking of a girl specifically, I'm not going to name who it is just because I don't want to, but it's like, she has to have a tap in practice. Otherwise she won't leave the ground. And I'm like, that's not how you, in my opinion, that's not how you instill confidence into somebody. I also don't love the idea of always jumping off of a little box to like help, help an athlete out. It's okay as a tool every once in a while, but when you start jumping always on a box, then all of a sudden at practice, you want to jump on the box again. You want to jump on the box. And I'm like, you're changing your takeoff angle. You're effectively changing how this is going to feel. You're doing it as a crutch because it's a little bit easier. So how about we just do the hard version, but that feels consistent, you know, always. Right. And um, so anything, that, anything to me that, that can become like an addictive crutch is I'm, I'm against but that's not to say they're not useful tools in certain situations. And uh, if an athlete can gain confidence by doing it one time, I certainly don't think that it's a negative thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I will say this, Brad, that you are the USATF coach of the year. And I think that one of the biggest things that has enabled you to do that is your ability to... Um, not rule out anything and to apply logic to every sort of decision that comes across your plate. And, and it's just, it's really cool because there are some, some people that you talk to will, you know, it's like my way or the highway. And it seems very cool that you just consider basically everything. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, I'll just consider it. I'll think about it. You know, I'll think about it and I'll apply some logic to it. And then, uh, if it goes through the ringer and it comes out the other side, 
you know, that it, it's a good idea, then I'll, I'll continue to do it. And I think that you're really going to, I don't know, just, I, I just am looking forward to seeing the future of possibly combining an elite training group with a chiropractic practice and your, your abilities to help people in the future is going to be pretty cool. So, um, I just wanted to say thank you. And if there's anything else that you wanted to mention or, or whatever, then floor is yours. No, I appreciate it. I mean, hopefully this was, uh, hopefully there was some, some good pole vault conversation in the mix of all the areas that we talked about. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I wish all the athletes, you know, that I've worked with, I mean, hopefully success and how they, how they move forward. It has been nice to kind of limit the group size to, to the three that I'm working with and, uh, we're cranking and things are going well. So I'm excited for the year. I'm excited to see how everything transpires. I appreciate, you know, all of your support in the pole vault community as it relates to my, um, you know, future, uh, I, again, I've always thought of having my own training facility and then, in a, you know, a, a, the treating in it. Um, but I think, you know, that will become clear as I get a little bit, uh, further down the road of how and where I live and what I'm going to do and whether it's more of a Cairo based practice or a vault based thing with Cairo attached to it, time will tell. So we'll, uh, we'll see, but I, I'm enjoying, uh, I'm going to be enjoying a little bit of life freedom again, once I get out of school and, um, yeah. hopefully, hopefully, uh, it becomes clear of where I should head and what I should do after that. Heck yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Brad. And this is the One More Jump podcast. Catch you guys later.